All right, everybody, we are back. Welcome. Please gather around people wherever you roam and admit that the waters around you have something. That's a Bob Dylan quote that I just bungled. Um, yeah, hopefully uh, Richard is uh, joining us. We skipped last week because there was some sort of technical problem on Colin's end where we could not uh, publish the episodes once they have been completed, which is kind of the whole point of Colin, or at least a substantial portion of the point. And so uh, hopefully now that issue has been resolved and uh, we will get back into the rhythm of things. That is, if uh, Richard arrives as expected, which I suspect he will. Um, the thing I was going to ask him right off the bat was uh, whether the breaking news within the past just half hour or an hour uh, or so that uh, Elon Musk has completed his takeover of Twitter and is now formally in charge of the company. I was uh, sort of curious if that will have affected uh, Richard's calculus as to um, whether Twitter is worth using at a regular pace as he previously had, Um, given that you would think at least that uh, Elon Musk plans to institute some changes of some sort to the whole moderation structure, although I have a uh, suspicion that the kind of apocalyptic uh, warnings that were issued about the effects of this corporate takeover are going to prove to have been a bit overstated, and uh, most users of the platform, I would doubt, are going to see much appreciable change at all in just the ordinary course of things, although I could be wrong. Um, However, I don't think that all of a sudden we're going to see some overnight uh, onslaught of, like, crazed white nationalists uh, seizing the reins of Twitter. Yep. Hey, Richard. What up, man? What up? This is big. This is a big thing. Yeah, I was just uh, telling the uh, assembled crowd before you arrived that I wanted to ask you if uh, Elon Musk officially completing his Twitter takeover as of about an hour ago, um, if that's going to affect in any way your calculus about the uh, viability of using Twitter, at least at, at the sort of more regular rate that you, uh, you used to use it. I think so. I think I deserve a blue check mark. I've applied several times and they've rejected me. Um, and I'm really, you know, quite insulted by that. You know, I, I think I'm, I'm certainly, uh, I'm uh, certainly prominent enough. I see these people who work for ProPublica who have like 300 followers <laughs> and they're all blue checked up. And I'm yeah. like, you know, and I'm like, I'm somehow not worthy. I've been in the New York Times like, you know, like eight or nine times. Really? So I didn't I, know I that. I, I think I just, well, I, I read, wrote once, but I've been mentioned. Oh, okay. I mean, I've been mentioned in the Times uh, maybe like eight or nine times. So, yeah, I mean, I think I, I, think I deserve it. Um, yeah, if they, if they don't, you know, if they give me that sort of respect, I, I hear, what I hear is Elon Musk wants to verify all real people, and so I'll, I'll take that. Um, but yeah, it's going to have to be, I think, I think I'm going to need that sort of inducement to come back. And I may, I, I may do intermittent fasting. I may do like Monday, Wednesday, yeah. Friday. <laughs> I, I don't think it was good for me to be uh, all the time, but I might do every other day or, so, yeah. or something. Yeah, since you're into these you know, numerical predictions or assigning like quantitative value to, the, to your perceived likelihood 
of things happening. Um, how likely did you think maybe, I don't know, six months ago that Elon Musk actually would, in fact, complete the corporate takeover of Twitter? Because a lot of people were pretty strenuous, strenuous doubters that uh, such a thing was ever going to happen. It was a gimmick. It was some kind of, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, facade. They didn't think it was serious. They thought it was just some sort of... Uh, swindle for Elon Musk to make extra money. Well, I don't know if you ever made that argument, but I'm sort of wondering how this comports with what your projections might have been. No, I thought, I thought he would do it because he agreed and they saw, I mean, they signed a contract like right away or they they came yeah. to agreement and that's all legally binding. I mean, the, uh, uh, the, um, there's the, uh, uh, you know, it's like the Delaware, you know, uh, chancellor, Delaware, yeah. uh, court of chancellor. I mean, that, that is, that is a serious, that is a serious place. One of the most bizarre really, judicial bodies in the country, by the way, that has such a crazy outsized influence on things because every corporate headquarters is in Delaware. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, people tell me they're serious. I mean, they really believe in enforcing contracts. And like, he caused all this damage. You can't just play with somebody's stock price going up, say, I'm going to buy it and then just say, I don't want to. He wait. I knew he waved. Like, he came back and did, tried to do that bot thing and say, oh, I need data on bots. But like, he, he waved due diligence, uh, apparently, in the agreement before that. So that wasn't going to work. They, they struck that down. Um, and then they, they were just going to force him to do it. And I thought he was probably trying to negotiate something lower. And it didn't work, and you know he ended up just he ended up just folding. Um, so yeah, that's I, I thought something like that would happen. I thought maybe Twitter would negotiate that, but yeah, I thought he would end up buying it because you know we have rule of law in this country. <laughs> I mean, it, it really would have been bad for the rule of law. Every rule of law like be stupid. Like if he didn't buy it because like hey, you can't just you know agree to things and then just say you don't want to just because it's a troll. Well, yeah, I mean it seemed like it seems actually pretty plausible that what sealed the deal for him and at least compelled him to stop seeking any kind of alternate arrangement or stop trying to broker or some like a lower price or whatever it was after he posted. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how much to extrapolate from his like public Twitter presence, but you know, people have pointed out that he was uh, exhorted like, I don't know, two years ago or so to buy Twitter on, on Twitter itself and like expressed openness to it. And then sure enough, he eventually does it. I don't know. But, um, it seems actually plausible that the you know the the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of him just kind of pulling the final trigger was after he did that public uh, poll on uh, some sort of outline of a diplomatic settlement to the Ukraine Russia war <laughs> and was just totally inundated with trolling from this you know organized online pro Ukraine troll army including from you know Zelensky himself and top government officials uh, in Ukraine and, and, and whatnot. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if that actually did uh, tip him over the edge to just say, okay, you know, maybe I could have at some point negotiated a lower price, but uh, might as well just uh, move forward with it and, you know, forget about the nonsense. I think, I think he knew, uh, I think he knew he had, I mean, I, I think it's, I, I don't think it was sad. I think it was just, it was, uh, the, I mean, the, the way it was going, legally, or the way it was going, I think he knew that the judge wasn't goofing around. He tried some ploys. 
you know, he tried to, he tried to like, uh, this thing where like they agreed by October 28th and the judge gave him that. And then he's like, okay, let's delay the trial. And the, the judge was like, no, we're going to have the trial. You know, we're not going to just say delay the trial indefinitely. We're going to have the trial if it doesn't close by October 28th. So she was just showing, I mean, she was just very, very serious about this. And I think he just sort of, he was bluffing into trying to get a better deal and it just, it just didn't work out. Uh, so I'm looking, I did actually buy Twitter stock at the time. I did think, so I, I do have a record of me. I bought it at 45 and he's going to buy it at uh, 54. Uh, so I did, um, yeah, I did, I did, uh, bad. I'm not misremembering this. Yeah, I, I always thought this was going to happen. I, you know, I didn't want to, it's too good to be true. I didn't want to, I mean, I didn't want to sort of get my hopes up, uh, even though I did think it would happen, uh, just because this is really great. I mean, I have to sort of, I feel like I have to walk on eggshells. I don't know. Have you ever been suspended? I haven't, no. Okay, well, I've been I've also been verified, for though, for things. like, uh, six years. So that probably yeah, shields think, me think to think some degree could... for being... Yeah, and so I've been trying to get the yeah verification, and they never give it to me. I, I, yeah, I figure that that gives you a little. Well, at a certain anyway. point, I mean, because uh, I got but, it. I mean, relatively speaking, pretty early. This was in 2016 that I got verified, and I got it not because I particularly even cared to be verified, but because it was the first time that people end up started making like actual parody accounts to sort of emulate my likeness and pretend like statements I hadn't made were uh, attributable to me. <laughs> so I figured, okay, that's actually you know the bare bones case for why verification would be worth pursuing. So I got it then. But um, I think, you know, at some point they, they basically just imposed a total moratorium on offering verifications um, unless you had like some super special in where like, you know, you were, you know, a top, I don't know, celebrity or politician or something, but they, they used to have just an open uh, application that you could submit for, to, to get verification. And all, well, they, all they I mean at that time now. was to show that I'm the same Michael Tracy that writes like columns for Vice and that was sufficient. They, well, they brought it back. You, you can get, you, oh, you can, can try, try? Okay. like you could go, yeah, yeah. They, they, they shut it down for a while. I don't know, like a year or something. And then they brought it back. Um, and so, yeah, I, I've tried two or three times. Like, you, and if you get rejected, you have to wait like sixty days or something. So I, I stopped trying after uh, a while. Um, they uh, and yeah, twenty sixteen, anyone can like white nationalists were verified. <laughs> Eventually, they picked them off. And the ones they didn't kick off, they took away their blue check marks. So like Richard Spencer, uh, he had a blue check mark. They didn't kick him off. They kicked off other people, but they just took away. His blue yeah, check. they did the same thing to um, Milo. So, like, actually, that was the first instance of that happening where they just removed the blue check mark that I'm aware of, yeah. which was a precursor yeah, so for him being you know, officially banned. Yeah. So 2015, 2016, I mean, it was very, uh, you know, it was very, it was really, a, you know, it was really a new, uh, institutional neutrality. I mean, they didn't, they didn't care. I mean, you, you got verified. I mean, you got a blue, you got a blue check mark. They, they, they rarely kicked anyone off until after the 2016 election. Um, that's when it took off. Uh, and so, you know, we'll we'll see. I, I you know, part of me loves Twitter. Part of me is uh, you know thinks it's a sort of a waste of time and annoying. But it's been, um, you know, I feel, I feel a little bit like out of the game. Like I feel like everyone's talking and like yeah. you know, I feel like I've lost my friends. <laughs> exactly. you know, I feel like I've lost my my community. Yeah, you know, um, uh, I'm uh, I'm uh, the re- one reason I'm pleased with it, meaning pleased that Elon Musk has completed the takeover, is because. I think you and I probably have talked about this in various forms before, but, you know, I admit that I've invested a fair amount of, you know, capital in Twitter. Like, it's something, it's a platform that I've used for a long time regularly. Um, the nature of, like, whatever my professional life is now is uh, 
you know, flowed pretty inextricably from Twitter. Um, so I'm not going to put on a pretense of like having this, you know, uh, ironic detachment from Twitter where I don't care about it, even though like uh, I check it 24 seven, which is like a lot of what other media people seem to do. Um, so to the degree that Elon Musk taking it over and uh, it will enhance like the stature of Twitter or fortify it or maybe curtail some uh, negative trends that might have limited its potential, uh, something along those lines. Uh, you know, I feel like it's a, it's good for me uh, personally, just in that, you know, it's, uh, it's somebody who seems to have a reasonably uh, robust idea of how to approach these things, you know, taking the helm of the platform that, you know, for better or worse, I have a lot invested in. You know, my, fr- yeah, I have a, my, my friend, Chris Nicholson, who I do the podcast with, he's, uh, you know, he's got like friends from, he was a PhD student in Michigan in uh, philosophy. Um, and he you know, like, he's like, when I post on Facebook, I mean, that like, you know, we're doing a podcast together, like all of these random people in my life are like, oh, you know that? <laughs> like, they just know me from Twitter. Like my, you know, my tweets have got, uh, I think viral a lot. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's part of my identity too. And I, you know, I, I, I enjoyed it. I mean, don't you feel like it's a little like, you know, it's the opportunity cost. Like since I, uh, cut back or, you know, pretty much stopped in most ways, you know, I've read more books. I've written more Substack articles. Um, I've read more, you know, news articles. Like, do you, do you worry that like, you know, just like what you're not, you're checking it 24 hours, what it's taken away from? Well, I'm not literally checking it 24 hours. I mean, sometimes it's actually, uh, disturbingly close, I do admit, but not all the, I'm sort of exaggerating in terms of people trying to deny the investment that they have in Twitter. Meanwhile, their own behavior shows that they clearly have a great deal invested in it. Otherwise they would ignore it, right? Which they don't. Um, it, it, Are any of these people actually going to leave? Um, I think some about. may, I, I think some might do the thing that, you know, Charles Blow, the, the New York times guy announced that he was going to do from the beginning where, you know, He's leaving Twitter, but he's going to do the thing where, like, he posts all his stuff on Twitter and, like, makes announcements on Twitter. But he's not going to, like, yeah. engage with yeah, – yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm sure some will leave. I don't know. But some may return. I mean, so, I mean, there's always been a give and take in terms of people leaving and coming coming back. Um, in terms of opportunity cost, yeah, I mean, clearly there's been a huge opportunity cost uh, for me in that I clearly could could have directed more energy to other stuff over the years. But then again – the energy that I have directed it to Twitter has enabled me to even have certain opportunities to do other things. So like, it's hard to know, it's hard to like know exactly what the right balance is to strike. I'm sure sometimes I go overboard, at least, you know, I'm certain sometimes I go overboard in terms of not doing other things that might be more productive. Um, but it doesn't necessarily translate into Twitter being like somehow intrinsically unproductive I mean, to the contrary for me. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the, the, the a central reason why I'm able to basically, you know, as a job, just do stuff that I'm interested in all day is, you know, as a, a function of Twitter. So, yeah, I think, yeah. One thing I think I'm going to need to do is I'm going to try to avoid the culture war stuff and, you know, it's like uh, there's an incentive because that stuff goes the most viral. But I guess maybe I could I could type it and then you know not like follow people who are also culture war people. You know, it's good to be informed. It's good to use it as sort of a news curating you know device like these journalists who just post like you know the most important things from their uh, from their stories. It's good to like you know be a little bit involved in like the community and the jokes and like I just don't want like always to be like oh here's Jason Stanley. No, yeah, that like, that's stuff point, be that becomes depressing and, and meaningless <laughs> and the NAFO and like it's just the same thing over like Mike McFall <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly 
And then, like, you know, somebody, you know, does, you know somebody's like, you know, like there's a Ukraine offensive and then people, uh, you know, make fun of people they think are, are pro-Russia. And it's just like, it's like, it's just a... Uh, uh, you know, it's just sort of tired. It's it's sort of the same. It's sort of the same thing over and over again. Uh, the tra- I mean, the trans stuff, the outrages. Like I don't, I think I just don't want to see. That. I don't want that stuff. It's like there's nothing, there's nothing new about that stuff, right? It's like oh, another school like got rid of standardized tests because they're you know they're racist. Like I've seen, like, you know, I've seen like a story like that like every week for the last fifteen years. You know, I don't learn anything new. You know, from seeing it, you know, the ten thousandth time. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I think I'm gonna if I, when I come back, I think I'll curate my stuff a little better and just try to be you know use it for things that are worth reading and being. Well, yeah, about. I mean, there's no doubt that you run the risk of just suffusing your consciousness with total tedium if you're not cu- curating in a in a in a proper way, and uh, I'm probably guilty of that at times too because. You know, I, uh, I, I, I engage with critics maybe to, to a fault. Um, but at the same time, you know, there's part of me that kind of just accepts that as like a, something that's ingrained in my whole sense of being because, I mean, I don't know about you, but ever since I was an adolescent, like, I don't know, 12, 13, I mean, I started out on the Internet just on these like message boards where people would just be debating with one another all day about, you know, whatever. And so, like, it's it's not like I can, like, selectively lobotomize that tendency out of my brain. Um, so I just uh, kind of accept it and try to, you know, take, I don't know, some maybe uh, modulating uh, steps to, to make it so that I'm not overly squandering, like, the, uh, the opportunity cost of, of doing stuff like that. But I, I admit that I probably fail at times. You know, interestingly, maybe as a segue, um, according to congressional staff, uh, who spoke anonymously to different publications like Politico and whatnot. Um, it was only when a huge uh, uh, meltdown on Twitter erupted that uh, the staff associated with the Congressional Progressive Caucus uh, became aware that there were any uh, there was any consternation about the letter that uh, they released uh, this week which, you know, ostensibly was calling for some sort of emphasis on a diplomatic approach to resolving the Ukraine-Russia war. Now, I think the actual substance of that letter was pretty much a joke. Like, it was more or less just a restatement of what the Biden administration policy is, with maybe some, like, rhetorical emphases that differed somewhat. I mean, to me, it just, uh, and I did a Compact Magazine article for this, uh, about this, but... The actual substance of the letter was more, more or less just seemed to function as me as a potential kind of PR maneuver for the, the signatories where they could say, oh, yeah, we tried to, quote, push for diplomacy, but blah, 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 blah. Whereas, you know, whereas in the letter itself, they expressly disclaim that they'll do anything differently in terms, in terms of the legislative action, like they were pledging to continue supporting the appropriations packages for, quote, unquote, Ukraine aid. Um, there was no expression of any desire whatsoever to like invoke some sort of uh, legislative authority to some compel some kind of modification to the Biden administration policy. So really it was just a face saving exercise. And yet even so, even notwithstanding how inconsequential the actual text of the letter was, it still generated this enormous fury uh, where, you know, within about, I don't know, 14 hours, they had to formally withdraw the letter 
like literally release a press statement saying we hereby with they, they actually said quote, hereby withdraw the letter and stake out a position now that explicitly renounces diplomacy and commits the quote unquote progressive caucus to full fledged infliction of military defeat on Russia. So not only did it did the did it backfire. It backfired in such a way that now these supposed diplomacy-minded members of Congress are publicly committed to even more extreme terms than they have been when they released the letter. So, I mean, it's, uh, it couldn't have been more of, uh, of a shambles. Uh, yeah, I didn't read the letter, but I saw the news story. I read your summary uh, of the letter. Yeah, I mean, even the McCarthy thing you mentioned is weird um, because it's... Uh, uh, because it's like, you know, this guy has never given any indication that he's like, you know, not, not complete, you know, complete war hawk. Um, and, you know, he makes one statement, we're not going to have a blank check for Ukraine. And that's like, you know, like, that's just like, you know, it's boilerplate. That's, yeah. It doesn't mean anything. Like, who says they have a blank check? Like, Biden right. say, we have a blank check for Ukraine. He would say, you know, he would try to say something, you know, he would try to say something more reasonable sounding. Um, saying we're, we're monitoring so, very yeah. carefully. There's plenty of accountability involved in our appropriations of necessary security assistance. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, you're more you're more coherent than Biden. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so I think it's uh, yeah. So uh, you're you're right. There's no. You have to be impressed. You have to be impressed with the sort of the bipartisan consensus. I mean, there's a. Uh, you know, there's a theory in political science that, like, you know, democracies can have more stable foreign policies because, like, you can actually, uh, you know, there's actually get solid support for what they're doing. And this is, yeah, this is bipartisan support for, for the policy. I mean, there's no, there's no dissension from it. So I think it's just something that's going to be a uh, uh, sort of, you know, part of the landscape from, from here until who knows, who knows how long. I don't know what would break this, would break this sort of spell. Uh, the support for Ukraine has. Yeah, I mean, the blank check comment from McCarthy that was so seized upon last week is with that whole episode was absurd. So is are we therefore to believe that the previous rounds of appropriations that McCarthy voted for, not just voted for, but wrangled Republican support, whipped Republican support for in the House, were those blank checks? Like, did he previously support blank checks for Ukraine aid and now all of a sudden decided he no longer does? I mean, it makes no sense because, as yeah, it's true. Not even Biden would say this is a blank check. They would cite all these supposed oversight mechanisms that are being employed, but by the way, which really aren't, to um, ensure the proper allocation of the funds and that, you know, there's monitoring taking place and, and so forth. And it is just ridiculous. Now, uh, there are a couple of things going on here. On the one hand, McCarthy and other Republicans are adjusting their rhetoric to some degree, which always happens around election times, uh, or frequently does anyway, even going back to World War II, where they will, where people running for office will claim that their objective is to, you know, uh, put, a, put a stop, like not cut a blank check for war making, right? Or they are the more r- relatively dovish political actors here, or they'll give assurances about how you know U.S. policy will not, under their stewardship, be allowed to bring the country into war or to be excessively, you know, war-like. Um, Republicans are doing a variation of that right now because there's at least a portion of the populace, uh, 
within the Republican Party that is wary of some kind of open-ended military commitment to Ukraine that, by the way, is escalating more and more, to use that buzzword, which people don't like to admit is accurate, but which is. Um, and so there's, on the one hand, there's like a bit of a pander going on with McCarthy and his ilk, uh, which in itself is also very selective because as, at the very same time as McCarthy made that one stray comment that was then extrapolated wildly from, he's also giving stump speeches around the country where he does this elaborate, he like expounds this elaborate theory uh, where he likens Putin to Hitler um, and, you know, gives a whole sort of like historical uh, synopsis of how, you know, Putin annexing the Sudetenland is the same, or uh, Hitler annexing the Sudetenland is the same as uh, Putin's annexations in those uh, Ukraine provinces recently. And this idea that Kevin McCarthy is all of a sudden going to like, do a 180 on everything he's done over the course of his entire career and become this like principled exponent of non-interventionism is like absurd. At the beginning of the war, by uh, McCarthy and other and uh, others in House leadership in the Republican caucus, like Steve Scalise, uh, Elise Stefanik, they were criticizing Biden from a standpoint of denouncing him for being excessively weak, for not being aggressive enough in providing arms to Ukraine and standing up to Putin and so forth. That was their posture then. Um, so, yeah, on the one hand, they're, they're total political opportunists. So you would expect, you know, when they actually have to go before the voters, they might kind of couch their rhetoric in a certain way that makes it, like, vaguely seem that maybe they are intending to rein back, like, the war-making authorities of Biden. But really, it, it mostly amounts to just a superficial partisan criticism of Biden. Um, that doesn't translate into any kind of real substantive deviation from his policy uh, preferences. I mean, if you actually think that Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell, if they run the Congress starting in January, are going to, like, collaborate with one another to break off appropriations or, like, to stop U.S. support for Ukraine, I mean, nothing could be more ridiculous to contemplate. Because uh, as of now, there really is genuinely... Except on the basis of some you know, fleeting and unimportant maybe differences in rhetorical style or emphasis, there's absolutely no difference that's discernible between McCarthy and uh, Pelosi on Ukraine policy. I mean, Pelosi actually was just in Croatia taking part in some kind of parliamentary summit around the Crimea issue where she declared the, the unflinching support of the U.S. for the military, a, a potential military offensive by Ukraine into Crimea to, to quote, liberate it. And, you know, has Kevin McCarthy evinced anything that would suggest he rejects that plan? No, not as far as I've seen. In fact, the opposite. I mean, the reason that why it was seized upon, sorry to go long, but the reason why that comment was seized upon so fanatically was because it gave Democrats and media, like de Democrat-allied media, an opportunity to, you know, to proclaim that Republicans were surreptitiously working for Putin or that they had been you know, beguiled by this, like, MAGA, pro-MAGA, pro-Putin, you know, uh, sentiment that was overtaking the party, and therefore it was more important than ever that Democrats win the midterms because otherwise, you know, uh, that's going to force... Uh, Ukraine to capitulate, and it's going to be a big victory to Putin. That was their, like, low IQ reason for making such uh, hay out of it. Uh, but, you know, when the chips fall, uh, there's really no reason, there's no good evidence to suppose that 
there exists any real kind of substantive difference between how Republicans would manage this situation if they ran the Congress uh, versus Democrats? Uh, I mean, uh, you're you're right. Um, the you know I was watching the Dr. Oz Fetterman debate. I did watch that. it. Yeah, <laughs> that was entertaining. Uh, you know, they asked uh, they asked him what's the biggest. It was a weird question. They asked him what's the biggest. Yeah, they asked Fetterman this. Threat. Yeah, and he's, he just you know he's he was like he's barely alive. You know, and, but he he knows enough to say China. It's like China. China is not our friend. Like yeah, yeah, exactly. China. Not friend, right? It's like yeah, it's like like very China, like, not friend. We must there. make sure we know to stand <laughs> like, up to like, China, China, which is yeah. not our friend, and China is not friend. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like you know, he's like, uh, you know, I, I don't think he believes this stuff. You know, this guy, from what I know, like his life, most of his life has been like a pretty far left wing radical. I don't now he speaks just like well, that's a bit of that's China a bit of but yeah. Oh, you think so? Left wing uh, radical. I, I mean, I don't see much evidence that he's been, ever been a left wing radical. Well, he doesn't. He doesn't believe. I, I think not believing in life life in prison is pretty radical. Do you uh, do you agree? Um, no, not necessarily. I mean, I don't think every every uh, critique of punitive prison sentences. I mean, I mean, I. I, I well, what about? Okay, I mean, there. Are, I, I know plenty of libertarians and even conservatives who make similar arguments about. Yeah. Okay, well, but you combine that with support for uh, universal health care. Do you support universal health care? Universal, you think universal okay, health care is radical leftism? In the American context, no, yes. I, I mean, not, I, not, not, not many politicians, and then, and then yes, not having life in prison. But anyways, it's not, it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, so I, I think he had views that uh, didn't correlate with being hawkish on China. Radical leftism right, would so be yeah. like wanting to foment a revolution in the United States so that the means of production could be expropriated or something. I mean, that's that's he's yeah, just that's kind extreme. of he's that's just kind I, of a mainline mainline progressive. Anyways, uh, you know, it doesn't matter. And in fact, but, like he uh, did this whole like uh, Andrew, he did this whole Cory Booker scheme when he was mayor of that little town in Western Pennsylvania, where he basically governed using this like uh, nonprofit structure. Where he could circumvent the city council and uh, basically do a publicity tour for himself, where people could donate to the nonprofit and like revitalize Braddock. I mean, that's exactly what Cory Booker did when he was mayor of uh, Newark, New Jersey, but on a larger scale. So, is that left wing radicalism? Okay. No, I mean it's like nonprofit. Oh, I mean, yeah. It's like uh, milk toast nonprofit progressivism. Okay, well, I mean definitions are. Definitions, but anyway, the point I was uh, trying to make. So he says China, and then Oz, you know, he weirdly he goes, "America does not project strength." Yeah. So this is like he's like a good politician now. He just says empty phrases, yeah. right? Like, project strength. What's that? And then he weirdly goes into the Iran nuclear deal, which like you know sort of came out of nowhere. Like, make sure we don't get back into the Iran nuclear deal. And I'm like, what is the politics of like Dr. Oz is he proving because he's like Muslim that like he has to be like you know tough on uh, Iran? I don't know. It was just sort of a very strange thing to bring up as like an foreign policy challenge. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was. Uh, it was uh, I thought that was very strange. Well, it's interesting because you know <laughs> if. Fetterman just wanting to give the answer to that question that would most sort of like energize the democratic base, if you want to use sort of a pundit cliche, he would have said something about Russia, right? But he didn't. He went, he went the opposite direction and said something about China, which, you know, the democratic base actually is pretty equally energized about now in ter- uh, compared to the Republicans. Um, well, he's, he's not trying to win right, the right, base, right? But that, that's that the thing. Like now to... he's, he's like, 
saying, giving the answer that he thinks is going to be more palatable to, you know, independents and Republicans um, in saying China. And it, bizarrely, he, Fetterman went further than even a lot of Republicans do in that. I mean, he said, like, it's not our friend. I, I, did he say it's an enemy? I mean, probably well, is, is, like the, like the way the he couched it is even more aggressive than what you'll even oftentimes hear from Republicans. Um, uh, it is. It, not always. Some, uh, it is said often, but not always. All, all, all I'm saying is that, like, he's going further than even some Republicans are willing to in terms of how he specifically characterizes China as, like, a formal enemy. Like, in the, uh, even in the Biden um, – even in the national defense strategy document that got, that put, got put out last week, which is this, like, quadrennial uh, – uh, security state manifesto, uh, which had last come out in 2018 and then was delayed this year because they had to modify it to in re- reaction to the Ukraine war. Uh, even in that document, uh, China, although clearly it's right in the crosshairs of American defense policy, it's not specifically called like an enemy, right? Or not, or not it's not said that like China is not our friend. Like there's still a little bit more deliberate in like couching the ambiguity of the phrasing around like how to specifically classify China. Uh, but Fetterman, you know, went all out and just said, you know, basically not our friend. And I think in terms of how Oz answered that question, yeah, it was pretty interesting. Um, if, if you remember when he brought up the Iran nuclear deal, yeah. he said, look, Iran is now involved with Russia, right? Um, sending drones and stuff. Uh, and, you know, my my reaction to the uproar around Iran supposedly sending this drone, these drones to Russia, or at least like allowing Russia to use Iranian drone patents, it's not clear if they actually ship physical drones to Russia. Um, but there's some they, collaboration the there, and Putin did go on one of his rare foreign trips to Tehran over the summer, uh, where like they did a whole thing. Drones. I mean, these things have a lot of them have been shot down. Uh, so. Yeah, but they could. I mean, well. I mean, they claim a lot of things. It could, I mean, I mean it could be that they were that, produced that in Russia sense. just using the Iranian model, right? I don't know. All, so all, the, the, yeah, I mean, maybe it, 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 it's, 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 it's plausible that they were just shipped from Iran. But the, the political salience of that is now, like, whenever a Republican, like, if there are some potentially wary Republicans who, um, are questioning, you know, the necessity of this all-out war effort in Ukraine, all you need to do is say the magic words and remind them that Iran, you know, they have people who chant death to America. They want to wipe Israel off the map. And now they're the chief ally of Russia or one of them. Therefore, you know, in order to fight Russia, uh, or in order to fight Iran, we have to do it by way of uh, supporting Ukraine against Russia. Actually, Netanyahu, who's up for... Um, election uh, who might become the become prime minister again of israel within a week uh he did a whole media tour recently uh where you know when he did conservative media i mean he did msnbc and cnn and stuff but he also did like fox and different fox offshoots and uh, he made exactly this argument for a more american conservative audience uh as to you know the significance of iran getting involved in uh the ukraine war potentially so not now not only do republicans now not, now, not only can Republicans can be like badgered to support the Ukraine war effort on account of China, you know, forging this arrangement with Russia, um, 
they can also do it on the basis of Iran, which is like the easiest yeah, I mean, country in the world to get Republicans yeah, riled they, up about. Re, re, yeah, Republicans really hate Iran. It's it's fun. It's, you know, it's it's uh, you know, it's not like there's like a mass. You know, uh, you know, it's not like there's mass opinion that like likes Saudi Saudi Arabia and uh, UAE and like hates Iran. Right? It's like you know, it's like this is uh, the Republican Party. Yeah, the groundswell of these, yeah, Sunni, Sunni Islam over Shia Islam. It's people are very passionate about that. Uh, no, it's um, you know, it's it's uh, yeah, it's a thing, and it's it's just like it's you know, they, the Republicans like the idea of like being tough, and Democrats sort of they like the idea of being tough too, but it's also like this moralistic uh, thing. And um, yeah, Michael, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not surprised. I'm not expecting change. I mean, it's going to be, it's like weird. It's like weird. Like, it's like, you know, all our foreign policy is sort of like this. Like, you never sort of shift from like a failed policy. So like when there was a, uh, you know, like Cuba, right? Like we have like, uh, you know, Obama finally like starts removing the sanctions on Cuba after, you know, uh, after 50 years. Um, and then, uh, you know, yeah. And then, well, not even, not, not even all of them. He did like some uh, minor tinkering yeah, to Trump it. Trump does a huge sanctions on that. Yeah. And not only bring them back. Do you know that? You know that one of the last things that that Pompeo did before the Trump administration left office on January twentieth, two thousand twenty-one, was to re-add yeah, Cuba yeah, to the yeah, state that, sponsors that, of yeah, terrorism Biden's list, and not, Biden's you know, kept it on. Uh, reverse any of this stuff. So it's like the, all the pressure is like be tough, right? It's like very rarely, like somebody will do something like Iran nuclear deal uh, or, you know, the, the Cuba stuff that Obama did. But it's just very rare. And like North Korea, you know, there's no movement on this. Trump meets with Kim Jong-un. It's like, you know, the end of the world. But like all that stuff is like it's not a continuing civil war. right? it's like, you know, we sanction Cuba forever and we don't have relations with Cuba. Like so what? the world doesn't blow up. Right. Uh, same with Venezuela, you know, same with the Iran stuff. Uh, but this is like, you know, lack of flexibility. It's something that's an ongoing conflict where a lot of bad things can happen. And, you know, that's frightening. We don't know where, sort of where it's going to go. Yeah. And uh, uh, last point, then we'll go to uh, callers. But just think of the 2006 midterms, right? Um, now, I... Uh, I guess I was 18 at the time, but I wasn't like a full-time follower of every little political in and out from like a media standpoint. And I like I was like a partisan Democrat at that point in that I wanted Democrats to win the midterms, right? I wanted them primarily to win the midterms so they could uh, be a check on Bush's ability to, uh, you know, wage the war in Iraq. And Democrats in 2006 – they campaigned, you know, in part, uh, in large part, on wanting to make it, make it so that Bush would no longer have a quote blank check in Iraq. Right? They actually, if you look at it, a lot of them made very similar arguments, arguments to what Republicans are making right now, where they didn't really question any of the basic premises of the war. Although, more often they did actually in two thousand six than Republicans are doing today. But a lot of it was like procedural arguments, like um, Bush doesn't have a plan, right? Uh, Bush doesn't have the right strategy. Um, Bush is sort of arrogant; he's not listening to critique. Uh, it was kind of just like superficial partisan versions of an anti-Iraq war argument, 
And, you know, what was the end result of Republicans, of uh, Democrats winning the 2006 midterms and taking power in 2007? Well, they put Nancy Pelosi as Speaker of the House. She, uh, you know, did a lot of rhetoric in uh, putting forth criticisms of Bush. Uh, actually, she went further than a lot of Republicans go now with Biden and Ukraine. But ultimately, Democrats didn't curtail any appropriations for the war budget. They voted for all of it. Um, there was like a, a, a minority of, of, of Democrats, like with the Dennis Kucinich and John Conyers and people who were against funding the war. But the mainstream Democratic position, including like what they, you know, Obama and Biden and Chris Dodd and Hillary enunciated in 2008, uh, 2007, 2008, during the Democratic presidential primaries, was to continue funding the war and just like request a change in strategy. And, you know, sure enough, you know, just a couple months, like a month or two, uh, it might have been like weeks, actually, after uh, Democrats took power in Congress, Bush announced the, quote, surge in Iraq. So they, Bush escalated the war once Democrats took office and Democrats didn't do anything about it. And then, you know, at the end of the day, Bush settled the terms of the Iraq war on on terms amenable to Bush. Uh, with the like status of forces agreement that was uh, brokered with the the, the Malaki uh, Maliki government in Iraq, um, so yeah, I mean it wasn't clear at all that Democrats winning Congress had any appreciable effect on the actual trajectory of of the war. Yeah. And I think you know there's well, even less reason to believe in 2022 that Republicans taking power um, would have any appreciable effect. Matter. Um, Maybe I mean let's see maybe what could happen they could like I don't know like you, you could imagine Putin's rooting for it that's what they're like, saying you could imagine complications right because it's like they just hate Biden right they're just you know they're just partisan and maybe being in Congress and just like being against Biden like maybe not the Senate but the House you know they tend to be more connected to sort of the base and sort of more uh, you know more uh, more ideological more tribal you know maybe it's not impossible. Um, it's not impossible that a handful of Republicans make life difficult, but yeah, I wouldn't uh, hold my breath. And, you know, eventually this is going to be interesting because if, if Republicans win the House, we're going to be in the presidential election season soon, and Trump will probably be running in the favorite, and he'll be saying all kinds of things about Russia and Ukraine that, like, you know, that Biden doesn't like, and there could be pressure on Republicans in Congress, right, to like follow you know their their, their cult leader basically, um, and so who knows? It could get it could get interesting. Yeah. Maybe, but I mean, think about it this way, right? Um, let's say in the new Congress, Republicans have an extra 10, 20, 30, even say 40 or 50, which is at the upper end of a reasonable projection. But let's even go with 50, like an extra 50 members willing to vote against appropriations for Ukraine, right? Um. That's still only like a third of the caucus. And they're presumably going to have Democrats voting in complete unison in favor of more appropriations. So there's still going to be a workable majority for these appropriations regardless. And what Republicans can still do at that point is like uh, throw a bone to, you know, members of the quote unquote grassroots who don't like the Ukraine appropriations. But, you know, functionally, yeah. McCarthy knows that there's still going to be the votes available to get the thing passed. So, and and and, and, the, and, and talking about and, the, and with regard to the Senate, 
I mean, it's a joke. I mean, Mitch McConnell, I mean, people think Mitch McConnell is going to have some kind of epiphany. I mean, it's like people don't understand, like, who Republican members of Congress really are. I mean, they, they, they fixate on, like, a Marjorie Taylor Greene as though she's representative of just, like, the generic Republican member of Congress who's yeah, I mean, generally more militaristic than the generic Democratic member of Congress, or at least had been. Um, so if, like, a bunch of more well, generic Republicans get into Congress, which is, gonna, which is what used to be a um, – the, the idea that there's going to be some rule, like seismic shift uh, just in doesn't the, in the house. Well, I don't know if it was the Senate or the House, but uh, where it was like I think it was the House, uh, where nothing if Republicans have the majority, nothing could be brought to the floor that doesn't have a majority support of Republicans. That was just the internal rule they had. So basically, they could keep stuff on the floor, and then you couldn't pass something just with a minority of Republicans and Democrats. So I don't know if they're still. I don't know if they actually did that in the House, or I don't know if they're going to still be doing that. But like you could, I don't know. Like, you could have enough of a grassroots thing where it's like, you know, a uh, majority of the public. I doubt it. I, I think the probability would happen as well. Maybe. But there were, there were, there were I just, there were just, there was just a, a couple of reports from the past day or two about how uh, Kevin McCarthy was going around to, like, the more, like, uh, classically hawkish members of his caucus, reassuring them that, of course, he didn't mean to say that Republicans wouldn't give aid, and they will, in fact, give aid. They'll just, like, you know, cut out maybe some of the fat um, from the previous aid packages where, like, there was money that went to the U.N. or, you know, there's uh, other kind of pork that they can say that they, you know, save taxpayers the expense of. Um, but in terms of, like, the raw military funding, yeah, I think you're, I think you're uh, McCarthy right. yeah, doubled, I mean, has doubled I, down on saying, McCarthy you know, he's going to make sure that's more Trumpy, still But level. I remember, you know, so tw- since 2016, uh, half of Republicans who were in Congress are gone. They either retired or were, you know, are primary or defeated in elections. So half of them are gone. It's a new party. And, like, they're getting, they're getting Trumpier as time goes on. They're just getting more. It's just getting that sort of the, uh, that sort of the direction of the party. Um, so maybe it's, you know, it's not this, probably not this cycle. And Trump, it's like himself, like, you know, who's going to be in his uh, administration. He'll be, you know, it's weird. It's weird because maybe he'll be like, when he's running for president, he's going to like say all this like anti-Ukraine sort of pro-Russia stuff. Um, and that like could move them. But like when he gets an office, I think it's going to probably be the same as, you know, uh, the same as uh, his first administration. So at that point, like if they followed him, they're just going to be hawkish. If they're just following Trump the candidate, they might be a little bit, you know, more devilish, I would say. Uh, but no, they'd be, you're right, the median uh, sort of, uh, the moral outcome is that, um, yeah, I mean, they, the both parties agree, agree with the foreign policy. They agree with the and even when Trump, like, even when Trump criticized the passage of that aid package in May, um, I would have to go go back and look at the precise wording of his statement, although I guess it doesn't even matter that much. I mean, Trump can blurt anything out any given day. Um, but uh, my, my my recollection is that it was sort of more lines of along the lines of this like supposed opposition to a blank check. Like he didn't express any principled opposition to funding Ukraine's military effort, right? Um, it was more just like you know Biden is incompetent, that kind of thing. Um, and you know, either way, this could at least be partially moot because one of these Republicans who was quoted in one of, the, in, in one of these articles uh, reaffirmed something that Democratic congressional aides and, and members had said last week, which is that if Republicans do take Congress, um, 
then like in December during the lame duck, Democrat, uh, the Democrats and like the more stridently pro-Ukraine Republicans are going to put a, 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 a muscle through the largest Ukraine aid package yet. They, 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 they uh, estimated it at 50 billion and that, will, that number will probably go up. Um, so, you know, the, if Republicans do take the House and or Senate, uh, they won't even have to, yeah. like, uh, worry about a debate around Ukraine appropriations for at least, like, I don't know, four or six months. Yeah. And I mean, you know, then who knows what the questions. status you, you is going to be. So they can forestall that um, whole issue for, for yeah, a while. They have, they have some of the officials from Ukraine saying, you know, they, all, they said this weapon was impossible, we got it. Then they said yeah. this other thing was impossible, and we got it. And it's just a matter of time before we get everything. I think that's more than the money. Uh, which weapons I think they're going to give them is the interesting question. Right. <laughs> and that's where there could be sort of room for escalation. Now, Congress can't, you know, force, they're unlikely to force that. That's part of the administration. So, you know, they're probably not going to go, you know, they, I, you know, I think they probably aren't going to do anything too crazy, but... Um, yeah, I think that's that's what to watch out for, not just this administration, but whatever the next administration is. Yeah, I mean, when you – sorry, we'll, yeah. we'll finish up now and go to callers. One last thing. I mean, so this was a New Yorker article uh, that came out. It was last week, right? Um, I read it whenever it came out, right? And it go, it's, it's the most uh, detailed account yet – of like the actual ins and outs of how this U.S. war effort in Ukraine is actually unfolding, like logistically, right? So um, they give an example, or the author gives gives an example of the so-called intelligence sharing arrangement, where uh, the U.S. sends uh, right yeah. to like the iPad of a Ukraine unit the precise location of some Russian unit, and. Within like a matter of seconds, yeah, there, was, there was two bits. There, there was, was like I don't know, hundred or something the, uh, Russians killed uh, in action. Uh, was well, like a direct function. And I think they said four hundred. Uh, the, so yes. the Moscow was its Lexi flagship, right? That's like and that was just. I mean, like this reports, you know, the U.S. gave them the coordinates, uh, or or maybe the Ukraine right, had them, right, but they right. checked with the U.S. Either the But not just give them, though. Like, give them in terms of, like, a real-time yeah. combat so, scenario. Have it's not the, like they, uh, they, like, you know, sent them an email, and then a couple so days they later, a, um, they act, they have, you know, uh, and then they have a, uh, actualize it. It's a real-time combat scenario. And I remember this story. It was a huge story. Like, hundreds of Russians died. They were just, like, they were crossing the bridge, and they just hit them at the right time. Yeah, the, and so this was also the U.S. You know, there was a good article in Reuters. I don't know if you saw this, but there was uh, this... Uh, uh, I think the city called Balakia or something. It was in Eastern Ukraine, and they had the documents from Eastern Ukraine. Did you, did you see this? Reuters got the documents. Yeah, so the Russians left behind these documents and like diaries. It's, I mean, like a diary. Uh, so like, they no, had a lot I of detail. It was yeah. like the high bars came in, and then they became you know they just like everything started raining down on the uh, on the Russians. And they, they this was you know in the Kharkiv region. This was before the uh, you know the, the this was the buildup to the collapse. Um, in that front, uh, so yeah, I mean, you know, I think that they would say, you know, I think they would say is like we've been doing all this stuff, Michael, and they would say, uh, you know, and Russia hasn't, you know, bombed us or anything, so it's just working. I mean, they're just they're just wins. We could just keep doing this. So. I, I but right, but I guess you know what I would want to ask you is, 
so people criticize me if I call the cur- current U.S. activity in Ukraine like a military intervention. They'll say, oh, there aren't any boots on the ground, even though there actually are reports that there's a larger number of U.S. special forces on the ground. But even bracketing that, I mean, h- how do you – like what's the, what's the most apt neutral characterization of these extremely extensive – well, real-time combat operations that the U.S. is directly facilitating. Like, how do you like? How would you like? Uh, yes. How would you even describe it? But is it a mili- It's a military intervention, right? Uh, yeah. But they're they're intervening in a, like it's a, like it should be on the Wikipedia list of U.S. military interventions. Uh, no, it shouldn't because people think that that's not that's like propaganda. You know, even even with that Kharkiv offensive, right? There was, um, and, and it's funny. Sometimes you have to go into like the mil- the defense industry trade publications to get this information because it doesn't come out otherwise. But there was a report in like Defense News, which is you know basically just a booster publication for the U.S. defense industry, where they somebody quoted a um, an Azov special uh, forces commander. So there, Azov is still out there active. Yeah, um, who had done like reconnaissance the for the Kharkiv mission and uh, was. Uh, said that the the re- the reason why they Azov were able to so, I mean, so successfully I mean, stuff is execute that mission was because of U.S. like what is the involvement? Uh, who's hiding it? I meant the A's, the Azov angle in particular, like as like as an Azov fighter, like a uh, head of the military intelligence unit of Azov, specifically stating that it was only because of the U.S. military assistance that his unit was provided that this mission was able to be success- successfully executed. So there, like, there's, no, there, there's no withholding yeah. of aid to, to Azov, right, which supposedly was going to be the case. Azov was? I missed this. And by, by the way, they were also in the U.S. In, in late September, early October on a lobbying tour where the, one, of the Azov, one of the Azov command – yeah, one of the Azov commanders – and I, I, I was, I was, I, I should, I, I regret that I was in a World War II vortex at the time. Otherwise, I would have gone and tried to cover one of these events. Because apparently, they were in New Jersey. I mean, they were at these like Ukrainian American society gatherings, where they would have like you know meetings in a church basement or something, and they would raffle off patches for as prizes in the, like their fundraisers. And the the patches are still the wolf sangle, uh, however you pronounce that symbol that's derived from Nazi Germany. And they're on a lobbying blitz. They met with they, the one of the commanders said they met with at least fifty members of Congress, and they're still using the Nazi symbol. And yet we're supposed to be now. Everyone tells us that Kanye West doing a bipolar tweet in the middle of the night is like that's the real anti-Semitism crisis. I don't either. That was that was a that was a uh, that was a distraction by me to bring up. Um, all right, let's go to some callers. Always. You're up, always holding our feet to the fire. How, how, how do you see um, the international situation um, with Ukraine evolving? Do you see the Indians moving their stance? Um, you've already seen the Israelis starting to move their stance now that Iran is arming Russia, right? So I'm actually... Um, how has India forward. moved their stance? How is Israel well, I'm asking if you think moved their stance. I, didn't, I, I never claimed India has moved their stance. Okay, good, yeah. Well, so the Israelis are moving their stance, and there's some rumors that they've been, like, helping Ukraine shoot down drones. But what Michael said is a little bit wrong in that 
um, BB is less. Uh, the, the Prime Minister Lapid is much more in favor of helping Ukraine than, than the opposition leader Bibi is actually. Well, I didn't say he was in favor of it. I just said he was emphasizing the the Iran angle as a means of sort of appealing to American I mean, conservative viewers. The actual president was as well, right? Her is like, well, why are you citing the leader of the opposition? He's the leader of the opposition. Well, because so because he could be Prime Minister in a week. And he's no, on a U.S. media no, tour. That, that, that's not how it works. It would take a while for him to form a coalition. Okay, his, co- Wait, his coalition could win an election in a week and therefore make him prime minister eventually after yeah, negotiations. How about the, you know, the current prime minister? The current prime minister says the same thing. You, you, you never know the current <laughs> prime minister there. You know his name. Oh, Lapid, right? Yeah, yeah, good, good, good. <laughs> oh, thanks for the pop quiz always. I mean, what, what point are you trying to make? Uh, anyway, so, um, okay, so... Um, uh, do you think other countries will start shifting their stance? Do you think the Gulf states are gonna? Do, 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 didn't the Gulf states like start opening up more oil or something like this? Um, was that a couple weeks ago? Well, yeah. I mean, Saudi Arabia. Um, Putin said that uh, Saudi Arabia is on track to being incorporated into that BRICS formation, like the um, the block that started in 2017. That's with you know Russia, China, India. Brazil, South Africa, I think it is. Yeah. And they're talking about incorporating uh, Saudi Arabia into that. Yeah, I mean, Saudi Arabia. Uh, oh, okay. They meet and talk about stuff and take photos yeah. with one another with their arms locked. I don't know. I don't know. I think um, I think that, it does. I think, you think that, you know, the Saudis and other Gulf states. It's the battlefield technology. I think Ukraine, it's what weapons the Ukraine gets, whether they can maintain. Uh, sort of this uh, manpower, the mobilization, and then whether what, how well Russia, how much Russia can do uh, with its own mobilization, right? I think that's going to determine it. I, I, you know, I don't think that actually, you know, it's like if Russia's economy goes up or it goes down. Like I don't think it, I don't think it determines the war at this point. Um, I think it's. That's not what I'm asking. I'm asking if. If, you know, Iran started arming Russia, and now Israel starts to support Ukraine more and more. Would you think the Gulf states will? But, I, but my answer is I don't know. But I, I don't think like, it matters. I don't think it matters. Oil I don't think Russia's budget is going to spend what it wants on Ukraine. It's, it's gonna, the reality is going to end up based on uh, the battlefield. You know, the battlefield realities. That's what's going to. That's what's going to determine this thing. Well, whether Israel enough, Israel provides Iron Dome, then that matters a lot, right? So, like, that seems like a. You know, that seems like a big step, yeah. and it's unlikely. I mean, why, why does, I mean, why does, uh, you know, I think maybe Israel, I mean, Israel might have an advantage. Like, they get to see the Iranian drones in action. They get to see how they're used. They might be able to learn something from it. They're doing that. They're sharing intelligence. With Iron Dome, it might be a different kind of, but they are sharing intelligence, and there's some rumor that they've been telling that, like, giving them something to shoot them down. Uh, Iron Dome works for a different kind of... Some uh, rumor where? What? The rumor where are you getting this rumor from? Debka. This, this, okay, some this, website. Debka. Um, it's, it's been reported by a bunch of places. I mean, I think there is... I mean, I think there is some movement uh, in terms of political agitation within Israel and outside of Israel for them to change their stance. Like, I, uh, I flagged 
about a week or so ago, uh, editorial in Haaretz, which is like the leading uh, left liberal newspaper in, in Israel, where they, they called on the government. I mean, Haaretz editorially called on the government to abandon its you know, reticence to actively aid uh, Ukraine. So, so that's that's uh, significant. Mean, Haaretz is like partially owned by this guy, Neumann Nevelin, uh, who's like a huge anti-Putin oligarch, and he's one of the big co-owners co- co- of Haaretz. So that that's that's not very surprising. Well, I mean, I think it, 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 whoever owns owns Haaretz, it, it reflects like a more uh, like a liberal left liberal uh, intensification of like advocacy for Israel to change uh, its stance. Now, if Netanyahu does end up presiding over the next government, they're not going to have influence uh, over that. Um, but you know, let's say that the, this current coalition survives, maybe they could. I don't know. I think the the, the I, I I'm. Correct me if I'm wrong. I haven't seen evidence that the actual policy of Israel has changed, but they're definitely under more pressure to change it. Which they, they, they have yeah. a bit. They're sharing intelligence on how to shoot down. They, they give Ukraine intelligence on how to shoot down the rockets, and there's a rumor that they may offer even given them some interceptor. Um, what you say is true, though. They're generally pro-Ukraine, but they don't want to get too involved, and the, le- and the left is more more uh, more hawkish on this than the right. That, yep. I haven't seen any change in India's stance. I mean, somebody can, can correct me if I'm wrong there. In terms of China... I mean, uh, Richard, I don't know if you followed anything from their, uh, na- the National Congress that just uh, concluded last weekend. Um, but, uh, you know, it's funny how almost inaccessible, like, the primary sources are. Some people, so that stuff can be evaluated. But I did find a transcript of a press conference that was given by, like, the for- Chinese foreign ministry during the Congress – um, to journalists where somebody asked, uh, like a journalist, like one of these weird pre-selected journalists asked a, uh, like the deputy foreign minister, or maybe it was even the foreign minister, um, like what does China think is the number one, uh, what are the top accomplishments China has made in terms of international relations over the past five years? And the first development of this new limitless friendship with Russia. So there's uh, no sign of that wavering either. Um, and I, also just today, uh, Putin gave a speech to this Volodai discussion group in, in Moscow. And unfortunately, I only read half of it because the, the full English transcript isn't up yet. But he's also talking about how uh, like Putin is more and more explicitly uh, invoking U.S. interference in Taiwan as like evidence of like this fundamental depravity of like the Western international rules-based order and stuff. So, you know, there's pretty good evidence that that relationship is pretty uh, well fortified, also. So, you see that um, the, the Chinese are not going to move away from the Russians, India. So, no, no one really. I see no evidence of it. I mean, yeah. somebody can point me to I evidence. Mean, yeah, if Russia goes and does something retarded, like use a tactical nuke, I think that everyone will denounce them, even, you know, China, India, whoever, right? I mean, if they do something very stupid, like use a nuke, then that, but yeah, it probably won't, not much will happen with Iran, the countries that Iran really hates, and whatever, yeah. So um, the, the countries that, you know, the Iran and the Supreme Leader say shouldn't exist or whatever, obviously will get mad. Richard, did you follow that uh, Chinese uh, National, uh, com- uh, Chinese Communist Party National Congress thing at all? Uh, yeah, in part. I didn't notice anything big on foreign policy. Um, well, I mean, in his speech, Xi... Decla- like read uh, declared in the most strident terms he has yet the determination to you know retake 
Taiwan by any means necessary. Uh, yeah, like, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, she's totally crazy. You could actually start a war and try to do it. I mean, that would be really bad, I think. I don't want... Yeah, I... I, I... Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off always, but let's go to uh, Andrew. Can you hear me all right? Yep. Yeah. So uh, I talked to Daniel, who's a very pro-Ukrainian person on Colin, and just asked him what he thought talked about... Who? Sheep. Sorry? This guy, Daniel, he's been okay. a critic of uh, Aaron Monte, probably called into yourself and Katie Albert, a couple other people. He's pro-Ukrainian. I was uh, asking him what he thought of this idea that the GOP would somehow stop funding the Ukrainian war, and he didn't even buy it. He, When I asked him about it, he basically said it was a small group of people that were just making noise and that it was, you know, not realistically a worry, which kind of, to me, is revealing that even pro-Ukrainian Americans understand that this line is kind of nonsense. And I think it's something that Democrats have been trying to push. Yeah. Well, I mean, the only pro-Ukrainian Americans who aren't cognizant of the nonsense of that line that is being pushed are the ones who want to use it as a political attack on Republicans in the midterms, you know, so. the Yeah. The next thing I wanted to bring up was just, uh, I, would it be fair to say, Michael, that you are a I know you're officially neutral, but you were pretty supportive of Tulsi Gabbard uh, in the 2019 primary, right, as a candidate, or at least as a her positions. Uh, you know, I, here's what I would say. I mean, I set out to fairly cover what I thought were her novel and, in many cases, useful and correct um, uh platform positions or like what she was advocating in a way that was not being done by the lion's share of the rest of the media. But yeah, I mean, her positions speaking. though, right? I mean, I feel like yeah. it's fair to say, I, I'm not trying to lead you into anything. I was yeah. a supporter of Tulsi. I maxed out almost my donation. Of her, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not exactly wealthy. <laughs> so. um, have you been following her at all lately and her endorsement of like people like Dan Bolduc in New Hampshire? Uh, yeah, I, uh, I looked into I Don Bolduc in New Hampshire. Um, I, I think, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, Don Bolduc, who is this retired general, he's the Republican uh, Senate candidate in New Hampshire. Uh, in February, he went on Fox News and basically said, yeah, we got to go. He basically called for a U.S. NATO invasion of U U Ukraine to fight Russia in February. Well, he said um, we need to go all in, but he said not boots on the ground. So it's Okay, well yeah, all in, right? Yeah, all he said all in and he reiterated that. I mean, I saw a thing on Newsmax he did in May where, you know, he was basically criticizing the Biden administration for not quote unquote go, going all in enough on furnishing aid um, now I think Bolduc is a um as a guy who's like maybe similar to Chad McCarthy. And others, he's like modified his rhetoric somewhat during like the general election campaign where most of the time, I mean, most of what I've seen of him in terms of comments on Ukraine is him like making a variation of this procedural argument against how, you know, Biden doesn't have a strategy, can't give a blank check, uh, that kind of thing. Doesn't question the premise of the funding, doesn't indicate that he would decline to vote for the funding on like principal grounds. 
And so, yeah, I mean, I do find that endorsement to be uh, highly dubious, and I don't see any substantive reason to think that Don Bolduc has, like, had an epiphany since May when he was a full-fledged hawk on the subject, even if he sort of tempered his uh, rhetoric somewhat lately. The the thing is, the the tempering of the rhetoric follows the Tulsi Gabbard endorsement, apparently. I've I've been uh, Um, involved in a libertarian group that's been basically following this group around in New Hampshire trying to not quite protest them but kind of protest them and get them on this point and following who around dan boldick and uh tulsi like following their following following boldick's campaign around yeah and in new hampshire when tulsi gabbard showed up these ex-tulsi supporters on her campaign showed up to basically bring this point up because this is contradictory to her previous foreign policy stance did she respond she was not asked a question because they rushed off the stage before the q a period which i'm sure was a reaction because they kind of knew uh, some of these people, right? Like, and so they kind of, <laughs> I don't know, later yeah. asked, one of the guys, you can't go to New Hampshire. You, you, I mean, I spent enough time in New Hampshire following campaign events to know that, um, <laughs> you can't really, uh, escape the, uh, the, the, uh, libertarian guys who travel in groups Correct. to confront people. <laughs> well, and so they asked one of these guys, Reed Coverdale, basically, please stop coming to our events. And he made a bargain with them that if Bolduc doesn't interview Who did? Reed, the Bolduc campaign people? Yes. The Bolduc campaign people literally told Reed Coverdale, the naturalist capitalist, the libertarian uh, New, the party of New Hampshire guy, that if he would stop going to their events, because apparently he wasn't even doing anything. He wasn't yelling. He was not doing anything. He was just there and talking to some of the people politely afterwards and they said please stop coming and we'll do an interview with you it basically said i won't go in if you promise bolduc does an interview with me before the election and they promised it would happen it hasn't happened yet but he's calling him every day it ain't gonna happen (laughs) i don't don't think it will but now in fact actually the the, uh the national senate republican like the uh the funding wings the campaign funding wings of, of the national republicans in the senate um, like two of them both just pulled out of New Hampshire. So they don't even apparently think that despite Republican fortunes increasing uh, nationwide, they're apparently writing off New Hampshire. Well, they're both warmongers. Maggie Hassan and Bullock are both warmongers. Well, yeah, I mean, they're both horrible. And, but now Tulsi's endorsing this guy, and he's apparently said, well, I don't support funding Ukraine anymore. He's changing his tune. So I don't know if Tulsi's actually – what she's doing here is just ingratiating herself to the GOP to try to become a viable VP candidate or somewhere, somewhere insert herself into the GOP because she says she's going to be independent for now, but she's endorsing these GOP candidates. The only possible way this could be justified in my view is she gets them to start saying, I do not fund Ukraine any further, but it's not for the right reasons. And it's, it's a, it's a fickle thing. I don't trust any of these people and no one should. And the, the entire point of an endorsement you know, it should be what their actual positions are you endorse, but she's either using it to ingratiate herself to the GOP or to get these candidates to align further with her policy because she's still saying that Ukraine is a proxy war that's dangerous. And so she's endorsing people that are con- completely contrary to that position in the hopes that either she can ingratiate herself to the GOP or that they will change her their positions and then run yeah. on her platform. But I, and I don't think Bolduc has at all changed his position on, on even Ch- on China. Um, no. I think he's just as strin- no. stringent on that. You That's know, I actually right. talked um, this past weekend to uh, Joe Kent in Washington State, who uh, Tulsi has also endorsed. I think she's I'm, I'm aware of her endorsing three people. I don't know if maybe there's more. 
Um, no, three, three Republicans. Bullock and Blake Masters, I think. Has she endorsed Masters? I'm, I'm not even I'm sure. I'm not sure about Masters. But I know she's endorsed Carrie Lake in Arizona for governor, which I guess, you know, is sort of separate then from the foreign policy stuff. And she's endorsed Joe Kent in Washington and Bolduc in New Hampshire. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. And uh, Joe, I mean, Joe Kent actually does seem to be uh, thoroughgoing in his skepticism of Ukraine policy. I don't know how well furnished, well developed it is. Um, I mean, I had an exchange with him about how Congress could invoke the War Powers Act to actually delineate specifically how Biden could be in breach of it, and he seemed to agree with it. Um, I think he, Kent also does seem to have some wacky views on on China that are, aren't like as front and center right now, so I don't know. Uh, but you know, I agree with you in the main that, uh, especially with Bolduc, um, I'm a bit dubious about uh, yeah. that endorsement. At the bare minimum, and I'd like to, this is my final thought, I'd like to hear what you both have to think about this. I'd like to hear any candidate running support american national interest you want to, you don't have to call it america first but you have to justify why these policies are an american it's always these vague platitudes and i want to hear what american interest is in the current policy and why it should be supported because they're never they're never asked to make this point, even when they start saying, well, maybe we should back off on the funding. It's, it's completely illegitimate, in my opinion, unless they can start explaining American national interests thoroughly. And it's, it's never done. I feel like there's a big opening that people want to hear. That's why America first worked. But no one. Well, no I mean, you know, Andrew, that it. they're going to. I mean, I have heard that query addressed. And like you said, it's always a bunch of platitudes. They'll say it's, it's in America's natural interest to ensure the preservation of the rules-based international order, to ensure that countries can invade their neighbors, uh, to ensure that you know Putin can't do a blitzkrieg throughout the rest of Eastern Europe. I mean, they will give an argument that they at least claim right. like, accords with their conception of America's national interest. It's just yeah. a platitudinous conception, right? So, I mean, they, they do address it. It's just right. predictably well, bogus. what I'm saying is I want the people a, – a, a, a litmus test on legitimacy should for these people that supposedly oppose further funding should be to explain as a – like make the positive case for us anti-war people why it's an American interest to stop – uh, stop arming them if that's what you believe. Make the American interest case because, like you said, I've heard the platitudes from the pro-arming Ukraine case about why it's an American interest. But if for a legitimacy test, I'd like to hear some of these people that are pretending to be, you know, against arming them. Well, why? Let me hear the American interest and then start talking about that and make that the, make that the point. But they don't do that. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm going to try to cover myself a couple of uh, midterm campaigns in the uh, next week or two. Um, and uh, I'll let you know if I, uh, <laughs> if I uh, am able to get any questions across, which address that. All right. Well, it sounds good. Thanks for the time. Have All right. Let's go to uh, useless oaf, which I'm sure is the name on his birth certificate. Hey, yes. Michael. How you doing? Welcome. Hey. John Fetterman. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, first things first, I'm just wondering politically, Although you just talk a lot about, you know, Democratic-Republican differences, I mean, to an outsider, it looks to me like your nation and mine as well are essentially running under um, a uniparty where the superficial layer of 
who says what, who do we, and which figurehead do we get to vote for is a little more... Is your country the United theater. Kingdom by any chance? Yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, ultimately this is political theatre, which is designed to distract us from the corporatocratic objectives, which you'll... Um, I mean, Putin himself in the Oliver Stone um, interview put, sums it up as saying, the faces change, but the policies stay the same. I mean, is that not the case in our countries? Well, you know, on, on foreign policy, it most certainly is. I mean, you tell me, do you detect a scintilla of difference between uh, Keir Starmer um, and now Rishi Sunak on, on Ukraine policy? I mean, or China for that matter? I mean, the only difference is I can really ascertain in terms of the UK, where I actually was for about a month this past spring and even talked to like a labor MP, talked to activists and, and so forth. Um, it's a similar dynamic in the U S where there, uh, the labor has been, if anything, holding to account the government then under Boris Johnson on this issue by, by, uh, proclaiming that even more aggressive measures need to be taken in Ukraine. Correct. Um, and like, uh, now, I'm not sure if Rishi Sunak taking office portends any difference there. I do think it's it seems plausible to me that he has a less of like an ingrained zeal on this issue than Truss did or than, than Johnson did. I've never seen like Rishi Sunak going around making totally, you know, uh, bombastic proclamations about uh, Ukraine that really deviate from just what the generic line is. Um, so maybe that means that he has like a little bit less of a like a emotional investment in it. But in, yeah, in terms of overall like political orientation of uh, overall orientation of, like the political class in the U.S. and the U.K. Yeah, I mean it's one of the one and the same. I actually think there might be a bit more dissension actually in the U.S. just because the U.S. political culture and system t strikes me as a bit more like cloistered. Uh, than it is in the U.S., which is just kind of like by nature, even even geography, more diffuse. So you do see like dissenting lines bubbling up more often here. Uh, but in the main, it doesn't really make a difference because it's, uh, yeah, I mean, more or less just a single uniparty line. Yeah, and, and so, I mean, I, 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 I agree that, I mean, in, certainly in the U.K., everything that's happening that you've seen recently and in, through COVID and before it is is literally theatrically managing um, a corporatocratic agenda which is going to be the same no matter which party is in power and an example of that in covid is that keir starmer was literally baying for even more of the tory party un who gavi seppi covid management protocol a week earlier there, there is no difference right and then you take that into um ukraine it's the same Labour, Labour would do exactly the same things. But when you look at who Keir Starmer is, he is a member of the Trilateral Commission, paid in full. He, he was literally on the membership um, list for the Trilateral Commission when he was before he became uh, a member, uh, the uh, leader of the opposition, and during his time as the leader of the opposition. No one has asked him why, right? But that is a rich boys club. I mean, that's that's essentially an even lower key version of the World Economic yeah. Forum, and he is supposedly the socialist leader in the UK. He's not. A well, I mean, in terms of, I mean, uh, Corbyn, 
uh, was subjected to various underhanded UK security yeah. state machinations where, yeah. you know, meetings with him, with uh, MI6 and such, were immediately leaked to the press to paint him the most nefarious possible light. It was kind of like a, a similar thing as was done with Trump, although obviously on a less grand scale, but uh, clearly whatever deviation Corbyn might have represented on this front was um, furiously uh, pushed back against internally, um, and now he's been pretty much marginalized. So, Yeah, I mean, the grey zone have sort of fairly characterized this. I was, I was surprised, actually, that they, that, they had, that they put it this way, because it's, it's correct. What happened to Corbyn? is literally Britain's equivalent of Russiagate. However, yeah. it's far more effective because you boys had to tolerate a guy for four years that your establishment didn't want and Russiagate prevented him to get, from getting the second round. But in the UK, it completely prevented Corbyn from ever taking power. And it, that, therefore, it was truly the greatest weapon of all, of all politics that I've seen. It prevented uh, the only person in my lifetime who's ever kind of even done anything manifesto-wise remotely like trying to return Rome to the people. You know, yeah, like Corbyn, they took him out Corbyn immediately. The, one, of the, one of the chief lines against Corbyn was that he was a national security threat, right? That he was compromised. Um, now, it didn't, like, that attack on Corbyn didn't have the same ideological contours exactly as the Russiagate attacks on Trump, but they have, like, a similar sort of uh, genesis um, in that they emanated at, you know, at first from, like, the deep recesses of the national security state. Richard, do you have any thought on that, or should we proceed? Yeah, I'm not an expert in British politics, and I really didn't follow Corbyn, uh, the Corbyn situation that closely, so, yeah, we should probably proceed. Okay, thanks, useless oaf. <laughs> I'm, glad I, I'm glad I got to say thanks, useless oaf. All right, uh, Tony, you're up. Tony, are you there? All right, Tony going once. Tony going twice. Tony, uh, all right, we got to skip over you. Uh, feel free to come back on the stage if you're around. All right, uh, Matt, you are up. And I know who you are, Matt. So you, don't have to, you don't have to preface. <laughs> Hey, yeah, I'm still in Romania, by the way. Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, have you seen any uh, military? Have you have you gone to see okay, those military exercises? Yeah, yeah. So I made some friends because I have this fucking pug and he's very friendly. And uh, I made some friends going out late at night with these young guys. They were very drunk, and it turns out they're Ukrainian and they're in the military. And they're like twenty some early twenties. Um, so, like, you know, I. I guess I'm a likable guy. I kind of talked to him about it. I was like, you know, maybe America's not your friend. They were egging you guys on to do something that's maybe not going to be so good for your country. You guys can hear me, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, he was like, uh, you know, like, listen, man, I know we're not as rich as your country, but we're still like a normal country. I want to go to the movies with my friends. I want to do this and that, the other thing. And I guess the sense I got was, they, they just—they don't want to be part of Russia. They want to be part of like a normal European country, right? Like that was. Wait, wait, these were these were Ukraine like uh, active duty military guys walking they around Romania. 
they live in my building. Yeah, they're working. For were me. they act, were they active duty military or yeah, they're, they're just like the, random they're Ukrainians? Dealing, they're active duty. They're officers. Okay. Uh, but what was funny? We, we were both like he was very drunk. He, like it's very endearing, you know, as a veteran. Like I don't really like the wars, but like I remember being drunk and single and like. You know, the lifestyle, like, and I, you see him, and it's very daring, and he's like, who would call us a Nazi? Do you think we're Nazi? Do I look like a Nazi? And it's like this very handsome, blue, blonde-haired, blue-eyed man. I'm like, bro, should we do a very <laughs> yeah. like, you'd add The wokes would absolutely call you a Nazi. But, like, I didn't say that, but, yeah, I mean, look, they want to a be... Beautiful, a beautiful Nordic man. <laughs> yeah, exactly, like, I didn't want to break it to him. But he should just say he's Ukrainian, that he'd be fine, right? Yeah. Um no, so they're very, uh, it seemed like he was pretty, they're pretty motivated, it seemed to be. Um, well, yeah, well, was, that's clear. Well, what's funny was we were both drinking, and then the next day, I got his number, so I have a, a buddy here, and the next day I was like, hey man, remember me? And he's like, yeah, I still have the scars. And I'm like, what? And it turns out my dog had jumped on him so much, it scarred his leg. So that's his war wound fucking dog just tugged his up, eh? But but what um, are they doing? What are they doing from? I mean, is it is it is it Budapest or someplace outside Bucharest, Budapest? Bucharest. Oh, Bucharest. Sorry, yeah, sorry, not Budapest. You can imagine what they're doing, and like I don't think he exactly told me, but I kind of like you can you know like there's like uh, sort of. I'm always embarrassed when I when I when I when I mix up Bucharest and Budapest. By the way, but <laughs> oh, they hate it because they hate Hungarians for uh, like yeah. ancient. Like I like I think in the medieval times Hungary took a part of Romania. So like, like uh, yeah, no, I'm in Romania, Bucharest. I like I think they're doing. Well, let's not get anyone in trouble here. They're, they're nice guys. Still very much against the war though. Um, I am. Uh, it did not sway me, but I could actually. I think the point I told the story is, you know, like you you ha- have a high integrity by golf. And like when these people <laughs> get all mad at you, like I'm the same way. Like we call it integrity, we call it autism. But, like, I, I see how these journalists, they only talk to Ukrainians and they fucking get this empathy, you know? Like, you could see how, like, people that are not... Well, you know, I'm sure, I'm, sure if I, I'm sure if I had been with you that night and talked to those guys, I would probably have basically the same empathetic impression of them. And then that's not really right, the right, issue, right. <laughs> you know? No, but no, it's exactly not the issue. And it's like, yeah. it's also, like, these people that are blasé about, like, attacking a nuclear weapon... They're not dropping it on Malawi, right? They'll be dropping it in Ukraine, and that country will be done, right? No one will move there. Like, it, like I just don't understand how, like, they think this is going to work out well, but uh, it's just very stressful to me. It's like there's so much uniformity around it. Like, no one is saying fucking why it's dead. The only other journalist I really saw on the left, I mean, there's a few right-wingers, but there's this, I guess there's this Rolling Stone guy that's, like, pretty against it. He's the only left-winger I've really seen that's putting the Harp behind, like, Seth Harp, yeah, yeah, yeah. Seth Harp was very passionate. Good dude. And he was actually so in Ukraine. I mean, he actually was in Ukraine. He actually covered, you know, war stuff himself. Yeah, I can tell. In the early portion, about from my yeah. military experience, he was like saying the sort of things I've seen. Yeah, he's so, he's like, he's ex he's ex military himself. Oh, is he really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like okay. So when you're in it, by the way, because people are like, oh, like as a vet, you know, you've seen the horrors of war. It's not the horrors of war. It's like you see the top of the chain of command, and you realize that like. There really is not a lot going on up there, and they will they will continue to fuck up. All right, but my question is completely unrelated to my military experience. One of the reasons I actually voted for Biden was I read Duty, this book by uh, the fucking sector Bob Gates, right? Right. You guys were talking earlier about um, like Congress shutting it down, which they won't. Like we know they're not going to do. But like in Duty, 
Gates is kind of positioning himself as like a friend of Barack Obama. And like he's got Hillary that's a crazy war. Was this the memoir that Gates wrote like shortly after he left office in like two thousand twelve or something like that? Read it because Bridgegate for some reason like like uh, like Chris Christie did some weird bridge scandal that was like nothing. But Dominic was like, well, (laughs) I read it, which Rachel Maddow covered every night. Oh yeah, exactly. That was the biggest scandal in the world. But so like um, in it, like he's kind of positioning himself and Obama as like this. The, the voice of reason between, like, crazy Hillary, who's too pro-war, and, like, a clueless Biden, who's, like, super into peace, right? But, like, reading that... Yeah, that was the back, book. In that in that book, didn't Gates say that Biden has been wrong about every major foreign policy decision or something like that? Right, but it's taken out of context because if you fucking look back, he's right about everything. Like, everything in the Biden, the Obama White House, at least. He was right about those things. He was right about... Listening. Yeah, like the Afghanistan right surge, about Petraeus, yeah. Right about Petraeus, right about Iraq. So, like, he does have these realist instincts. There's this one amazing scene where um, Gates is in there with a general, and they're giving him, they're giving Obama the like different options for escalating Afghanistan, and they're bullshit. They're the classic bullshit options, which is like two guys or like a hundred thousand guys, right? So you have to take the Pentagon option, right? And Obama's like, actually, I would like a, like a sort of a medium option, and then Biden goes, and that's an order. And, like, Bob Gates acts, acts all offended by this as if, you know, yeah. the civilian chain of command. I think he, he, ultimately, went with, he ultimately went with 30,000, right? That was the, that right. was the happy medium offer. Yeah. yeah, and fucking Petraeus, dude. Don't get me started. The guy's such a sleazeball. KKR. He gets to work for KKR, private equity company. And now he's, like, friend. a de facto spokesperson for the Biden administration right now. I mean, he's, like, talking. And Biden hated him, too. So that's actually, that gets into my question. Does like if that was true about Biden, is is he like even like cognitively capable of executing the policies on his impulses, or is this just like all like Ron Clay and some guys from Fairfax running this? Because yeah, it seems like Jake Biden, Sullivan. Biden like hated Petraeus and hated like had a you know he had the old man like he's got the old guy that read that fucking one book that Kennedy read about the Cuban Missile about World War One and applied to Cuban Missile Crisis. Like he's got that in him, you know. But like, is he you know is he there enough? Well, Richard, I don't know what you make of this, but you know, my theory on Biden is that I think people overstate his like cognitive decrepitude, not that it's not observable, which it clearly is, but I think people under underestimate the significance of what seems to be a very discernible through line in Biden's public career for for decades because when remember when Biden was in the Senate in like the 90s in early 2000s, his main brief was foreign policy. I mean, by, uh, Obama picked him for vice president in 2008 to, like, quote-unquote, shore up his foreign policy bona fides. And, you know, Biden was the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee and so forth. And uh, Biden was personally responsible for, uh, with both Bill Clinton and George W. Bush, shepherding through these rounds of NATO expansion. Um, in t- 2003, uh, Biden was on the floor of the Senate uh, advocating for, you know, the uh, approval of the ratification of the NATO, of the North Atlantic Treaty to admit the Baltic states. And Biden yeah. ex- was the only senator uh, who gave remarks to express his wish that uh, Ukraine should follow suit uh, and, and join NATO. This was in 2003. So I guess what I'm getting at is this, if this whatever strain of, like, hardcore liberal interventionism that Biden adheres to at least with regard to the Russia issue and like regard to like Europe um, 
uh, even if there are yeah. like, realist instincts in other areas yeah. like Afghanistan or Iraq or whatever, although with Iraq, Biden was into some wacky stuff with like, um, partitioning. Uh, yeah, partitioning, well, no, ethnically. partitioning. It shows it shows that like, obviously don't do it, but like it shows he understands the basics. Yeah, and I know I guess it's going to sound like I'm telling you, it sounds um, like a big excuses for it. But I'm telling you, a lot of people don't know, like didn't know going in or even 10 years into the war. Difference between like a current and a fucking yeah, yeah. So I guess my, my, my point is like whatever – I mean I think you're right in that Biden has exhibited some of these realist instincts in other areas. But he's never exhibited this instinct with in, this, in respect to this area. Um, and, and his whatever, – whatever like remnant of realism might have been operative with him with regard to like – I mean even just Ukraine itself, he's had a particularized in, zealous interest just in Ukraine for years. Um, so I think, um, I think, I think, I I think it's actually a genuine ideological political commitment that he has with regard to Ukraine that is like the antithesis of, of, of realism. Yeah. Biden is old. He just thinks, yeah, he's old that he's sort of culturally like sort of of a different era. So like Europe is the center of the world to him. Um, and I think he believes in the transatlantic lines and just, and so it's consistency there, right? He was very hawkish on Russia during the Obama administration. He was least, uh, he was most wanting to withdraw from Afghanistan. And his foreign policy has reflected the guy who was in, uh, who was Obama's vice president uh, 10 years ago. So, yeah, he's the same guy. I mean, maybe he's a little slower, but he's the same guy with the same beliefs and we're seeing, you know, consistency in the policy. And those beliefs have been like intensified post 2016 with the whole addition of like Russia's interfering in our democracy. We have to defend liberal democracy by taking on Russia. You know, yeah, they're, party ex- they're exporting. He goes, he goes yeah. where the party goes. That's, exactly. that's always been by. He's always voted like, you know, the measures of voting. He's like always at the center of the democratic party. That's where he's been his whole life. And that's just, you know, that's just the guy he is. And so they moved, <laughs> so they moved on Russia. You know, he's going to obviously move along with him. <laughs> okay, I mean, actually, it makes, you know, you could be just like, you know, he, he maybe he thinks he's playing power politics with Russia because it's more significant country than Afghanistan. All right, if you got three minutes, since you, but you talked to me a lot. You can tell me off. But I, got a, I got a good anecdote for you. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. So my fiance is, like, as you guys know, Ford, and she sends me this video of um, a, a trans woman who's acting, like, in a way that, like, if a woman acted, people would call that, like, a sexist character, right? And she's like, what's going on in America? Like, a week later, that same trans woman is interviewing Joe Biden. What? <laughs> I, Biden. I guess the, her name is Dylan. <laughs> but, like, yeah. my fiance just randomly came across, she's not very political, came across the video, she's like, what's going on in America? <laughs> like this trans woman, like cha- it's an adult, but she's chasing flowers and butterflies and acting. Like- Who is this person? Like a like a Instagram, like a TikTok personality or TikTok, like I a think TikTok it's like personality? A, it's a TikTok, but she rose fast because one week my fiance sent me this video, laughing at it, and next week that person is interviewing Joe Biden. Like it's fucking wild. Um, well, last last know, Friday, I- last Friday, Ron Klain convened a summit at the White House with like literally the top. 20 most deranged resistance Twitter accounts like Occupy Democrats, Brooklyn Dad, um, uh, like uh, who who else now that I'm I'm blanking on like the Horse Whisperer, 
Um, Whisperer, that guy's been around for other like the, like like the yeah. uh, the literally most crazed people they were all right. at the White House on Friday. I think I think Fetterman's campaign said one of these people is just like a con man. Stop giving them money before. They oh yeah, this guy at his, this guy's at his name is at Funder. Like he like he's just a scammer. <laughs> like even even the most hardcore resistance people, right? Accuse him of being a scammer, and yet he was still in this group <laughs> at the White House. Okay, so like. I want to I want to clarify because it's being recorded. Like I'm not a big social issues guy, but I think the you know someone as old as Biden that moving on this trans issue is is it like so is it a consistent thing? You know, like if you could apply the four policy, has he changed or? But like you said, he's consistently bad for NATO expansion, so that's kind of my answer. I guess I don't know. <laughs> like I like I just don't see how this dude, you know. Like, yeah, like, like just, if, if during the yeah. 2020 election, right, you asked me, you told me that by 2022, Biden would have, like, done a withdrawal from Afghanistan and taken this extremely zealous, ideological, uh, ideologically committed line on Russia and then thrown in, like, uh, some, you know, pro-trans stuff. That would have been more or less what I would have anticipated, right? Like, none of that would have yeah, been Yeah, I guess you're right. Me. Yeah, yeah, I guess you're right. Okay, I got it now. Thank you. That's like, remember, good. Biden, Biden, Biden takes credit for having been the first member of the Obama administration to publicly endorse gay marriage, even before Obama himself did. I mean, Biden went on Meet the Press right. in 2012 <laughs> and said he personally supported gay marriage before <laughs> Obama. Yeah. Right. So, like, but they were so, to do it right before the election, and he just fucking said it like randomly without planning it. <laughs> well, I don't know if they had planned to do it before the election or not, because it was still like on the edge of being a politically practical stance to take. Uh, How least, says you know, that they had planned to leak this right before, or to like do a big announcement right before the had election. Had they? Okay, that makes and sense. Yeah. Biden just randomly quit during an interview. Yeah, but like, but, that, <laughs> but, the, but the point is, Biden always prided himself on like being a slightly ahead of the curve, so to say, on LGBT stuff. Like I remember he like he met with Lady Gaga on "Don't Ask, Don't Tell" stuff. Um, so yeah, I mean, this is all. Cons- I mean, the the, the uh, this trio of issues, you know, like Afga- realism on Afghanistan, antithesis of realism on Russia, Ukraine, and being pro LGBT. I mean, that's been pretty clear of what Biden has been advocating for now quite some time. All right. That's actually a really legitimate answer, man. This is interesting. Thank you so much. All right. I thanks, always love talking to you guys. It makes me feel, you know, I love you. I miss you. All right. Appreciate it. Um, all right. Let's go to last caller here uh, is Heidi. We got to give always another chance, man. We can't, we can't leave always hanging. Okay, I mean, is, he, is the fact that Always and Andrew are still on stage, does that mean that they want to add something else? Because if so, okay, we'll go back to them. Heidi, well, I think so, up. yeah. That, I think they, well, they came back. They left and came back. They must, they ha- you have to come back. You don't just automatically stay on stage. Okay, we'll go back to Always then, Andrew. Hey, Heidi. Hi. Um, I was wondering, I, I heard something about, and it's funny that you were just talking to the last guy about Petraeus. I heard something about his, um, he made some comments about wanting to uh, put, put together some kind of an international force or something like that. And then uh, McGregor uh, commented on it saying that um, it's an indication that this is what the owners, uh, our owners want or something along those lines. I don't, I'm paraphrasing. Have you heard anything about that? Cause I, I heard about it one little thing and then, and nobody else is talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. I tweeted this actually a couple of days ago, but um, Petraeus did an interview with this uh, French, 
news magazine, actually, La, uh, L'Express. I'm, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. Um, but in this uh, interview, Petraeus, who, again, is functional, functionally a de facto spokesperson for the Biden administration, he's alluded to being in direct contact with Jake Sullivan. Um, he is, uh, you know, put on TV by these bookers at ABC and whatever as like somebody who could speak to what the current Biden administration policy is. You can watch this thing he did with CNBC a couple weeks ago where he's giving like incredibly precise, intricate details about the nature of the U.S. military involvement right now in Ukraine. So clearly he has inside, you know, he's, um, you know, one of the, it's a common thing where like an ex-official, especially somebody as high profile as Petraeus, who was CIA director, and, you know, top commander in Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, whatever uh, legal problems you might have had, he's still somebody who's very much plugged in and can do this, like, who can go further than sitting officials can in explicating aspects of U.S. policy. But, yeah, he did give this interview where he um, he uh, floated the pro- prospect of if something, quote, so shocking and so horrific happens in Ukraine uh, that Russia does, uh, that might prompt, quote, a, multi- a multinational force led by the United States and not, as, and not as a NATO force, meaning that the U.S. could, you know, put together some kind of multinational force that's ancillarily related to NATO, but not like a, a, a direct, not in the direct command of NATO as a collective alliance. So you would imagine it being with like the U.K., <laughs> Poland, Romania, the Baltic states and stuff so they could bypass like France and Germany. Um, that seemed to be what uh, Petraeus floated in this interview, but I haven't seen what McGregor said in response. That's too bad because that was what I was more interested in. <laughs> what did, yeah. well, anyway. what did, what did uh, Petraeus say? Petraeus you mean said. It, oh. You mean Petraeus or McGregor? Uh, well, you say you don't know what McGregor said. What did Petraeus say? Yeah, Petraeus, again, in this interview a couple of days ago to a French magazine. He floated the pro- the prospect that if Russia does something especially horrific or shocking in uh, Ukraine, which he didn't specify, that the no. U.S. could then forge what Petraeus called a multinational force yeah, to, yeah. to do an intervention um, where they wouldn't have to, like, you know, activate Article 5. They wouldn't have to get, yeah, like, Petraeus, the full... He's yeah. a fr- even when he was in the Obama administration, he was trying to sort of push them into, you know, staying in Afghanistan when he was running that war. So I, 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 you know, I think he's probably trying to exert his own pressure. This is, this is the guy, this is who who he's always been. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, sorry, Heidi, I haven't seen the McGregor comment. I'll try to look it up though after this show. Yeah, it'd be really interesting to know your thoughts on it. Also, how do you like the parallels of real life with House of the Dragon? Um... What? I'm absolutely not watching that, so I have no oh, way to comment to. on the parallels. No, uh, I refuse. I apologize. Why? Why? I don't know. Exactly. I'm not in. I'm not like into fantasy stuff. Like when Game of Thrones was big, I was sort of like coerced into watching the first season or two, which was you know entertaining enough. But like, I can't. I can't bring myself to get invested in like any real fantasy fiction stuff. Oh, just not your style. All right. No. Well, next season, next season, they're going to have a nuclear war. I mean, you know, the dance of the dragons with fire and ash and bone. So it's just, it's weird. Anyway, I did see a clip. I did see a clip that they're in the new Call of Duty game that came out. And Richard, you'll enjoy this. In the new Call of Duty game that came out, somebody posted a clip. Um, I guess it came out in the past week, uh, month or so. The first mission you do is like a direct replica of the Soleimani assassination. No way. Oh. I swear to God, look it up. I'll send it to you. 
I want to get. Okay, yeah. So I, I used to play Call of Duty. It's actually very. I might. I might get this. Do they have one on Russia Ukraine? This would actually. Be well, fun. that's a thing. Like maybe. Maybe that's for next year. Uh huh. Yeah. They, that that makes sense. They. Uh, I want to get. I want to get. Yeah. There's. Uh, I love. I used to love those video games. I don't have time for them anymore. But maybe I'll. Maybe I'll get back into it. All the going out of the world. Okay. Always. Did you have something to add? Yes, I have a question for you guys. Do you think it's a coincidence that? Um, Biden, who is more hawkish on Russia and less hawkish on um, on states like Libya, is the president now, and Obama was the president in the late 2000s, and that's reversed, so there's more total intervention. Like, like do you think there's some sort of coincidence here? Is it just like a matter of luck um, that Obama was more of a dove on Russia and more of a hawk on states like Libya and took out the Libyan government where Biden was opposing that? What's your, what's your question? Biden, was it a coincidence? And Russia's Italian issue. <laughs> no, no, I think I think God planned it out this way. I uh, well, so I you think, think it's basically Obama, a coincidence. In your view, an unfortunate coincidence that like provide uh, weapons. So then, when the Trump administration came in, they started providing javelins. They started providing lethal aid, and then you know that that I think led to the Russian reaction. So I think that it was, it's not a coincidence. It's all endogenous, as they say. It's all you know. It's all part of it. Okay, but, but uh, you know, like if I yeah, had that's that seems clear. We likely would not have taken out Gaddafi, right? You think that's the? I I have I have no idea. So so I mean, just that Biden has been more hawkish on Middle Eastern states, and Middle Eastern North African states, and Obama, sorry, um, less and more hawkish on Russia, and he happened and Biden happened to be the president when the Russia issue is more salient. So do you just do that he, like uh, like what, what, what uh, so how could that <laughs> not be like what you're saying coincidental like there was some grand plan behind it I'm what's the coincidence the coincidence or do you think that there's some some other weird thing going on here all right so, uh, all right sorry always i'm i'm moving on from you because i don't even know how to answer that yeah it's andrew you're back yeah up. great i just want to really quickly say confirm tulsi gabbard did endorse blake masters and i okay. looked around real quick just perfunctory looking for his foreign policy i couldn't find much except for he says that israel's future is tied to our elections and that there are too many radicals in congress damaging the u.s relationship with israel so he's got what matters on his mind anyway uh, yeah. yeah, you know, I've I've tried to look a bit into Blake Masters on on foreign so policy. Actually, but I, yeah, I he was come a little, across was a not much. Like a Ron Paul um, so. type he's smart. Ah, can I just say real quick, Ron Paul just endorsed him today. Really? Okay. Yeah, that is that is interesting. <laughs> yeah, real interesting. Anyway, de- <laughs> this guy Daniel is the guy I was talking to you about earlier. The next guy in the queue. So okay. I would appreciate yeah, yeah. Take his call, and I'll yeah. Let's go. Yeah, let's go to Andrew or uh, Daniel rather. All right, Daniel, you're uh, much anticipated here, I guess. Oh, am I? Well, uh, a- Andrew, who was just up that conversation, you, uh, mentioned he referenced you earlier on in the in the call-in. So. Oh man. I hope it was all good things. He he cited you as someone who's, you know, quote unquote pro Ukraine, generally speaking, but still also recognizes that this idea that Republicans, if they win the midterms, are gonna like suddenly cut off aid to Ukraine is silly. Right. Yeah, for sure. I just uh yeah, 
just like with the dirty bomb thing, like we all think that's bullshit, right? Um, I haven't seen evidence for it. I, I don't know how to judge one way or another if it's bullshit, other than it's just something that Russia's claiming. I, I mean, I don't know. Do you have independent corroboration one way or another about whether that's a legitimate allegation? I mean, did you see that tweet from the official uh, Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs account? Uh, I saw some of that. Yeah, I, um, you know, I listened to today a... Um, I listened to today the deputy uh, UN ambassador, I forget his name, uh, for Russia, uh, giving like a press availability, I think yesterday. And um, uh, he was saying that they gave like a full pamphlet of evidence. And, and he like cited the particular, uh, you know, facilities where he said that like the technology for this is being developed. I mean, I, I'm, I mean, they I'm actually very, showed willing. photographic evidence. Did you see it? Oh, no, I haven't seen that. No. What did they show exactly? Yeah. So, so Russia posted that. They said it was from the Russian Ministry of Defense. Turns out okay. their uh, smoking yeah, gun photograph is from Slovenia uh, from 2010. <laughs> you, you, okay. you, you don't have doubt from me there. So. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I wouldn't be Man. surprised. If it's, I wouldn't be surprised at all if it's totally bogus and, and propaganda. It is a bit odd, I have to say that they're, they would get into such specifics about it where, I mean, I can't, I can't recite to you exactly, but I read something where they get into like very minute details about the nature of this attack. And then they would even go so far as to like, um, like they even did, uh, apparently Shogu, the defense minister of Russia, uh, initiated all these phone conversations with his counterparts in the US, the UK, France, and even Turkey. Yeah. And it would be odd. Yeah. It would be odd for them to even like try to pull a fast one on Turkey. So I'm not saying that means it's not propaganda or it's not false. It's just it compounds the odd, oddity of it to me. Yeah, I mean, it, to me, it's it's like the the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Like, there's a whole bunch of uh, smoke there and not much fire. And I think it's pretty much going to play out the same way. Like everyone's already forgotten that we we're already going to have nuclear Armageddon two months ago. So. I think uh, we're probably going to experience the same thing here. Well, I mean, I haven't forgotten. Biden's, Biden said that publicly for the first time only like two or three weeks ago. Sorry, said what publicly? I mean, the first time Biden even re- referenced this idea of a potentially imminent nuclear Armageddon was a couple was like two or three weeks ago. So, you know, I don't think I haven't. I mean, I personally haven't forgotten about that warning that the president of the United States gave publicly and then repeated it wasn't CNN. a warning he gave. It was just like bizarre sure was. rhetoric from Biden, which is what we get all the time. So you think there's no the pre- warning? You think, you think the president warning that the risk of nuclear annihilation is greater than? It. Hold on, hold on. So you think the president publicly warning on multiple occasions that the risk of nuclear annihilation is as great as a missile crisis? That could just be written off as Biden saying wacky stuff. Yes. Absolutely. What he, you think he was threatening okay. to nuke Russia? What do you think that means? I just told you. I told you he warned that the, the threat of a nuclear exchange or the threat of nuclear war is as great as it's been since 1962. That's just what he said. It doesn't have to. I don't have to interpret anything to know that's what he said. Did he not say yeah, that? It's just. Yeah, but are you saying like he's going to? 
like what? I'm not saying he's going to. I'm not saying he's going to do anything. I'm not saying he's going to do anything. I'm just saying what he warned of. Okay, that's great. Uh, But like you know, again, the only evidence we have from Russia on this dirty bomb uh, is so far complete bullshit. So uh, I wouldn't really read too much into it. Yeah, again, I I agree in that I don't read into the it being factually verified at all. I'm just, just sort of noting the the oddness of the the way it's been handled. And apparently, um, just yesterday, Putin himself repeated it uh, for the first time. Which again, I don't know what to make of it. I mean, Richard, what do you what do you do you make anything of this at all? They're basically glomming onto the the like like uh, Trump has done with QAnon. They're basically glomming onto the bioweapons, like biolabs, like complete conspiracy theory just to, I don't know, scare everyone. It's just ridiculous. Well, the media, I mean, you're not you're not presenting the media hypothesis, which is that they are uh, going to do a false flag. Uh, and blame Yeah, Ukraine like I said, I, that's why I brought up the Zaprija nuclear power plant, because the, the false flag never really propagated there. So. Well, I mean, well, 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 what? Um, this... I mean, it's a weirdly specific. It's a weirdly yeah. specific. Yeah. Well, what this UN, uh, Russians, uh, the Russian, oh, Russia's, Russia's UN, uh, UN ambassador said is that the logic behind it was for Ukraine to try to instigate wider U.S. or NATO. Whoa. Hey, Daniel, can you mute yourself? Oh, I'm so sorry. Um, it was. Yeah, there was like a giant wave crashing. Um, what the U, what the what this Russian UN ambassador and other Russian officials have said is that the logic behind it would be that Ukraine is seeking to instigate some sort of wider U.S. slash NATO military intervention in the conflict, and if a quote unquote dirty bomb goes off and they blame it on Russia, then that could bring forth that intervention, which doesn't seem wrong to me in terms of like what the operative logic could be. Not that the dirty bomb hypothesis is factually verified at all, but Ukraine has been trying to instigate U.S. uh, for much more aggressive U.S. military intervention since this this entire war started. I mean, uh, Zelensky was on a global lobbying tour in uh, March, April for a no-fly zone. And just a couple weeks ago, he called on NATO to do first strikes against Russia. I mean, they're always lobbying for more and more uh, advanced uh, weapon systems so that that is uh, an incentive of U- of ukraine's again i don't know if it means that they're going to do a like a dirty bomb attack and blame it on russia that seems a little crazy but i i mean i don't know i mean i you know yeah i just to me that doesn't make any sense like i know we're supposed to believe all ukrainians are nazis but i think that they well, I never, I never, I never said so, that. I never, again, I never said anyone's supposed to believe that. So. I don't think Ukraine has any desire to uh, set off a dirty bomb in their own country. When you say that, when you say, I'm actually curious now, Daniel. When you say that, you know, we're, you know, you're, we're supposed to believe that all Ukrainians are Nazis. Obviously, that's ridiculous. It would be ridiculous yeah. to assert that all Ukrainians Absolutely. are Nazis. That's just not true at all. However, hold on, hold on, Nazis all the time. Hold on, hold on. Well, I don't, I don't say that. But hold on. The question I want to ask you is, you know, I don't know how much of this call on you heard. I wouldn't, you know, I'm not expecting you to listen to everything I said or written. That's but fair. it is true that in late September, early October of this year, so just like a couple of weeks ago, 
the Azov Regiment was on a lobbying tour in the United States. I mean, they came to the United States. They brandished their iconography that is still the iconography in which the Wolf's Angle, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, is, is featured, which is specifically derived from Nazi Germany. And they were raffling off patches with that symbol as prizes at the events they were holding. Um, and they're also still active in uh, combat in Ukraine. There was a special uh, forces unit of the Azov Regiment that uh, did reconnaissance for their uh, Kharkiv offensive in September and specifically thanked the U.S. contribution to Ukraine militarily as enabling the success of that counteroffensive. So, of course, I would never say yeah. that all Ukrainians are Nazis. That's absurd. But, I mean, there is a very prominent regiment that is being universally valorized and that's being feted for a lobbying tour in the United States in which their official insignia features a Nazi Germany symbol. So, like, what am I, what are, what do you, what do you make of that? I, I mean, what do you make of that? Does that, that then justifies the invasion of a sovereign nation? No, no, I didn't say that at all. Oh, I'm just wondering okay. what, okay. Just saying what, what, what you make of the facts that I just laid out. Oh, well, the, the facts are fine. Uh, are you familiar with Pavel Gugel? They're, they're, they're fine. That's your, that's your take? Are you, are you familiar with Pavel Gubarev? Uh, not immediately when you say are that. Are you familiar name, no. with the Russian National, the Russian National Union Party? Um, are you saying that there are Nazi elements within Russia? Actually, Pavel Gubarev, member of the neo-Nazi party, Russian National Unity, he's actually the people's governor of DDR. Okay, I'm, I'm, willing to, I'm willing to grant all that. So he's I officially mean, I'm not... integrated okay. into the separatist government as well as officially integrated into Russia now, because that is Russia. And so he's integrated into the Russian government. And so okay. we're supposed to be so concerned about this when we all know that it's, you know, 0.001% of the, the entire population. Well, not really. Every country I mean, has Nazis. I mean, that, no, that's, a, that's, a, that's an incredible understatement of the significance of Azov, the Azov no, regiment in particular. Yes, it is. And I mean, why, did, why, did, why did Putin then give back... And also, more, more just now, if he's working on denazifying Ukraine, that's a good question. More importantly, though, more it. importantly, though, the U.S. is not funding and subsidizing and operationally coordinating any war offensive with Russian quote-unquote Nazis. But that is what They've the U.S. Voted, policy is doing. They voted with in 2018 not to give any weapons to them. Right, and there's no mechanism for tracking that at all. And if Azov leaders are saying that's that they're not true. There is a mechanism. There's a there's. So, there's so a, you know, so you know a that colonel on the ground in Ukraine, in all, he came, he got there in August, tracking weapons. What colonel? An American colonel? I can give you the name. Yes, a uh, NATO colonel. So, I don't. I can give you his name. Okay, what's his name? Uh, it was they've updated the CBS News documentary with his name. Okay, what's his name? Uh, his name is. Uh, Garrick M. Harmon. Sorry, say that again. U.S. Can you defense spell it? attache. Can you spell Garrick that, please? M. G. A. R. R. I. C. K. Okay. M. Is his middle initial, and then Harmon. H. A. R. M. O. N. Okay. Well, if you tell me there's a brigadier general currently on the ground in Ukraine, that's sort of interesting because I thought there were no boots on the ground. But um, yeah, I'll have to look. I'll have to look into. Well, is he wearing boots and is he walking on the ground? I mean, 
uh, I guess I've, I've, you know, like I've, I've heard of metaphors before, but yeah, I, I think probably literally too. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I have to look into that. Um, all I know is that since uh, in the appropriations packages that have been passed legislatively by Congress, there's been no provision um, requiring any kind of monitoring of uh, armaments furnished to Azov. And there's evidence that, um, you know, there's just a whole, it's like a free for all in terms of who's making use of these various armaments. And by the way, uh, that's not true. That's well, not true. What's it the is true. For that? What's the evidence? I just told you uh, one piece of evidence is that an, no. Azov, an Azov commander told an American journalist in September that it was thanks to his cooperation, thanks to the benefits afforded to him by U.S. military intervention in terms of arms and in terms of intelligence that they were able to successfully execute the Kharkiv offensive. Um, and that's only, the, that's only the tip of the iceberg. Um, so yeah, and also by the way, the, the, one of the reasons why uh, the Azov regiment fighters were on this lobbying tour in the U.S. recently is because they want Congress, they're lobbying Congress to specifically re renounce and to re repeal or abrogate that um, ostensible provision that had been put in the 2018 sure. defense why, appropriations bill, sure. which we have no evidence, we have no reason to believe is is any is even being enforced. Sure. So why are they trying to get it repealed? Well, because they want they want a formal repeal of it rather than just a, a, a practical repeal of it, because there's no evidence that it's being enforced. I mean, the Intercept did an article right when the war started, where they were talking to yeah. Gen, uh, Senator Shaheen and Menendez about whether they have any concern that weapons could be dispatched to Azov fighters, and they said that they're not bothering to even think about it. So, I mean, if there's a if there's a really stringent uh, protocol in place to make sure that. Azov fighters aren't benefiting in any way from U.S. weaponry. I'd like to see it. You can't see why that would be a secondary objective as opposed to, I don't know, stopping Russia. I can see why people would see it that way. I mean, it doesn't lessen my desire to want to see evidence on that issue. Okay. All right. Well, well uh, thank you. What, what is the issue, though? Do you have anything else to add? Like, how does, how does that actually, any of this, justify what Russia is doing? Uh, I'm not seeking to justify anything Russia is doing. That's always the pivot people try to make whenever... But that's such plausible criticisms. deniability for you while everything you're doing is to, to justify <laughs> what? what they're doing. Um, oh, yeah, it's plausible. I mean, all I can tell you, Daniel, is I've never once ever sought to justify anything Russia is doing. So if you want to tell me that you have access to my brain and you know that that's just plausible deniability for me, okay, go ahead. Uh, it just doesn't match literally anything I've ever said about the entire subject. That's fine. But it's just like, you know, like North Korea is called the Democratic People's Republic uh, of Korea. And like, so I don't judge things based on words. I judge them based on actions. And I, I just, I just, you know, I, I just I, I, line up behind making sure that Russia, you know, it's okay. We, of course, we don't justify the invasion, but, you know, we have to see the rationale for why they're doing that. And there's well, I mean, if you're, if, if you're saying that scrutinizing U.S. foreign policy, whether in the domain of... I'm not saying that. Hold on, hold I'm on, hold on, that. hold on. Let me, let me make the point. 
That's if you're fine. saying all my actions line up behind this like so- secret desire to justify Russia's invasion, uh, if th- that's that's exemplified by my you know scrutinizing U.S. foreign policy, whether in the domain of like furnishing armaments to Azov or anything else, then you know that's a pretty common uh, f- specious interpretation of scrutinization of U.S. foreign policy throughout the ages, going back decades. So it doesn't surprise me that you'd make that pivot. That was done for Vietnam, Iraq even World War II. Uh, so, I mean, it's just like a ridiculous line of argument. And if it doesn't match anything that I've actually done to, quote, unquote, justify Russian activity, I, in fact, I've been critical of Russian activity. And the first thing I said when the invasion was launched was one of the rare times I make a, made a moral statement and actually morally condemned it because I actually am against aggressive war. Um, but, you know, if you want to make an inference that I'm trying to justify Russian activity, there's nothing I can do to disprove that because you're not doing it on the basis of anything except this weird inference that you've made in your head, not on anything I've actually said. Yeah, I mean, it's it just, again, like you, you have all the same talking points. As, uh, I don't have any talk. I don't have. I don't have any. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know it's, what to tell you like, either. It I mean, sounds I don't the same see- coming out of all of you guys. All right. Well, you don't really have a good argument for any of this, so we're going to move on. Phil okay. uh, and then Pedro. I don't. Michael, I think we, I mean, I think two hours is. Uh, yeah, I know, I but I, I figure I'm going to, Richard, if you want to leave, it's fine. I'm just going to go to, going to finish I would with love, Pedro. I would love to ask a quick question. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Okay, I'll check out then and you go ahead, Michael. All right. See you. Yeah. You know, I encourage the last caller and everybody else to try and understand Michael Tracy, you know, before Ukraine on February 24th, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, anyway, question for you, Michael, you know, um, um, you've uh, haven't talked much about COVID recently, and I'm wondering why you sort of left the, left the topic. Uh, I understand in light of, you know, the recent conversation of the dirty nuclear bomb and whatnot, but uh, yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts there. Well, I mean, because it's been supplanted by other issues. I mean, that's the fundamental reason why. I don't know that there's a whole lot on the policy on a policy front that there is, is worth. I mean, there maybe there is. is maybe there is. I mean, I, I, I acknowledge that I haven't been paying nearly as much attention to it than I had was like this time last year. It's just a matter of priorities and having limited bandwidth for st- for things. And I, I regard, you know, um, you know, Ukraine. Russia and the, and like related foreign policy issues and like the connection to like domestic U.S. policy and politics to be like at the forefront of my priority list at the moment. So I'm not discounting yeah. that COVID is still relevant. Maybe in some ways, it's just not at the top of my uh, list to to focus on. I like I said, I understand the focus on Ukraine, but you know, I encourage you. You know, you're very capable. You can definitely uh, uh, do both things. And like, I what's the number one? What's the most important thing recently that you would? say I should have, I should focus on? In terms of COVID? Yeah. Well, just today, you know, I, I'm reading that Yale University is requiring the booster for its students, which is okay. interesting. <laughs> yeah. they, they, forced, they tried to force their faculty to get the vaccine, and apparently there was pushback, and uh, they rescinded that requirement, but are keeping it for the students, supposedly. You know, just, okay. that's just, you know, every, every yeah. day, small, small things like that that are sort of like, you know, just like Ukraine, it's a, such a massive uh, conversation. Yeah. There's so much going on. I think you could, uh, you did, uh, you know, so much reporting back, you know, a year ago when I know before Ukraine's for for sure, and uh, including on the including on those university mandates, um, yes, which were being sorely undercovered. I was deluged 
with people from universities all over the place sending me crazy yeah. updates on the rules that they were being, you know, forced to, you know, adhere to. Sure, sure. You know, I was thinking I'd come to, a, like, the Yale University and set up a desk and make a sign and say, you know, convince me why I have to get uh, vaccinated and see <laughs> yeah. what happens. You should join. I remember your video. But anyway, like I said, it's a small thing. And, uh, yeah, I hope you, uh, you know. Well, you know, well, you know I'm, into- I'm I'm open to dipping back into it here and there. Here, something, here's here's yeah. something for you. Here's I'm gonna look up. I'm gonna you. look up the Yale thing. Sure, actually, sure. Here's something for you. You know, uh, Lee Zeldin is uh, competing very well in uh, New York right now, and I I'm. Sure I watched he- that debate actually, where he and he said in the debate yeah. that he would. Uh, he's against any vaccine, any COVID vaccine requirements at all, including at like SUNY and CUNY schools. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think by the way, he's by the way, Lee Zeldin totally swamped Kathy Hochul in that debate. Like whatever you think about the substance of who was right, who was wrong. Yeah. People should watch. I mean, it's incredible. He's like a DeSantis, but it's in New York. But anyway, you know, um, I um, I I encourage you for COVID for the simple fact that it's uh, it's more relevant for us than Ukraine, other than the fact that, you know, nuclear war could end, you know, but uh, other than that, you know, who's us like you mean college like like are you a college? Are you, are, you like, are you a college student? That's what he mean by us? No, I mean us as in the United States. Oh, yeah, I'm not sure I would agree with that, but I know what you mean. Yeah, no, that just that it's here. It's 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 actually connected to people's lives. Whereas well, I mean, stuff, plenty of stuff, not. plenty of stuff is here in terms of Ukraine, in terms of like converting the United States into a war economy. They're they're they they just slipped a provision into the upcoming national defense authorization bill to uh, in a. Uh, Authorize the Pentagon to uh, convert into a wartime contract procurement posture. Um, so, I mean, there's plenty of stuff that's actually like, tangible that's happening in the U.S. It is tangible, but it's not tangible to my life, and it's not tangible to your life in the sense that it doesn't actually uh, affect us right now. Right now, you know, I understand where it, you're saying it could go for sure, and exact, and you know, the relevance of what it has now, but it's not affecting our lives as COVID is. For example, the vaccine, like I said, for a college student, I'm not a college student, but for that person, quite quite a bit more relevant than the, than the war in Ukraine at this moment. And I think that's a, that's a, can be said for a lot of people, not just college students. But no, that, anyway. that, that's fair. I mean, if I don't know if you follow me on Twitter or whatever, but if uh, you want to DM me or email me like different COVID stuff that I might have missed lately, I'm happy to take a look at it. And I'll look up the Yale thing as well. Sure. Well, they just added the COVID vaccine to a kid's CDC, uh, the CDC or whatever, just added it to their childhood vaccination uh, schedule. Yeah. You know, people actually did message me about that. that I think so. I mean, I I admit that I've been a bit monomaniacally focused on. I got you. No, I understand. Yeah. Yeah, Just trying to bring it to your your attention. Uh, People out there, you know, have an open mind, like stop losing your minds. Like Michael Tracy has, like he said, he has no idea what is going on in Russia. He doesn't pay attention. He doesn't like uh like follow like t- telegram he doesn't read any of this stuff and that's the i read telegram you do it like Russian well, I mean, telegram I look, channels? Uh, well no not really i mean exactly i, I mean every now exactly. and then i'll look at so, like some like vaguely pro-russia telegram channels just to, like i look at pro-ukraine ones just to get like a flavor of what they're saying but it's not like it's not like i'm taking talking points from you know russian telegram on a regular yeah. basis that's a ridiculous yeah okay thanks man uh, All right. Thanks, Phil. And uh, I see Pedro's up. Uh, let's go to Pedro, and then I guess we'll close out unless anybody else wants to jump in. Pedro, you're up. 
Pedro, I cannot hear you if you're trying to speak at the moment, so I'm not sure what the issue is. Pedro, are you there? Oh, Pedro's gone. All right, everybody. Well, uh, thanks for tuning in. Oh, Pedro's back. Pedro, you're up. Can you hear me now? Yes, I can hear you now. Hi, Marco. Uh, so, uh, 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 I, uh, I was not going to call, but I just wanted to quick, quickly comment on the previous caller because it kind of pissed me off a little bit. Okay. Uh, for, first, I want to congratulate you for what you do on uh, as a journalist. Uh, I already told you that a couple of months ago in a call with Grant Greenwald, uh, especially on Twitter. Uh, I, I, I don't use Twitter. Uh, I use Twitter, but I don't engage with people. But I, but I find kind of interesting and depressing the kind of abuse you take in the replies with people that don't agree with you. I don't know how, how, how you deal with that. <laughs> yeah. But, but <laughs> I would find. Pre- uh, I compartmentalize well. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's it. Uh, so the, the the reason I called was uh, I just want to comment on the previous caller, Daniel. Uh, I actually uh, call uh, we and several people here on Colleen. We kind of sometimes reunite together on shows, and uh, I'm on I'm on the frequent speaker. And the other day uh, I was a, a speaker. Uh, the show is called uh, Balls and Stripes by Rudy. Maybe you want to check it out. The, the show is called Ball, Balls and Stripes. Okay. Uh, so it's kind of people more or less on the left, I would say. Uh, we, me, personally, I follow Aaron Mati and Max Blumenthal, so yep. that kind of crowd, you know. <laughs> so anyway, the, the, uh, the reason, uh, what I was going to say was uh, that, uh, so this uh, Daniel person, and he has two friends. Uh, one is called Greg, uh, that is his slogan is Slava Ukraini, and another is Armchair. Uh, so the three of them usually call our shows. They also call Aaron Mati, say, say. Is wrong on that. So, uh, and the other day I was kind of debating one of these persons. Uh, but I just want to kind of congratulate you for what you said, because it was a, a good kind of uh, rebate of what he was telling I kind of said the same in my argument with last like 10 minutes or so. I kind of explained all the history, but they don't seem to understand how these things work, in my opinion, you know. They see as a kind of, I don't know if they are just not very well informed or, or, or if they are just idiots or something, but uh, I try to kind of give my, uh, what I think about the issue and uh, I spoke for 10 minutes, uh, I gave all the history, so I'm not going to repeat it here, so I just called just to say that basically, that uh, I think you did a good job trying to explain the, the issue. I think one the, 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 what you said, uh, oh, uh, yeah, you, you don't, you, what you said, you don't justify anything, you just try to understand why things happen. That was exactly what I said in my, in my discussion, you know. We, we just try to understand why things happened, and uh, my conclusion was uh, what Russian says, they said they, they were going to be invaded, they invaded first. That's in a nutshell what I Yeah, mean. you know, well, thanks for that, Pedro. Um, you know, 
over and over again, I've tried to impart to people on this medium and others that my genuine desire has never been to justify or to make an argument in favor of anything that Russia is doing, to do apologetics for Russia. Um, and indeed, I've never actually done that. If you actually look at the text of what I said, the problem is that people just make their own inferences based on what they think like the thrust of your, what you're saying is. Um, and part of that stems from this like reflexive need emotions are on this issue to just always pivot what I've roughly called like to uh, to what I've roughly called like a moralistic lens rather than a analytical lens. Like so if your main objective in discussing this issue is always to like explain why you personally believe that Russia is morally wrong and that why and why it's morally right for the for you, the U.S. to be involved in the manner that it is, then you know any facts or analysis or observations that might run counter to those convictions of yours that you uh, exp come across, you're going to probably interpret as representing like the opposite to your point of view. In that, like somebody trying to make the opposite point about justification or moral correctness, um, and I think. If that's if that's what you're uh, wedded to in terms of analyzing this situation, it's a real distortion because you need to at least aspire to have some degree of impartiality and re uh, emotional remove from it to have a mo uh, you know a comprehensive understanding of like the actual reality. And uh, so that's what I've that's what I've striven to do. I mean, this idea that I have like some kind of personal animus against Ukrainians is just absurd. I have no personal animus against Ukrainians at all, just like I don't Russians or any other nationality. It's just ludicrous. Um, but, you know, there are certain um, prerogative, analytical prerogatives that one must subscribe to if one desires to, you know, accurately describe reality to the best of one's ability. And that's, you know, without trying to, without being pompous, like, that's what I, I'm yeah, trying, I've always tried to the, do. On the different subject of breaking news right on Twitter, so... Uh, uh, Donald Trump will be on Twitter by Monday, apparently. Oh, there you go. So he's not content with truth, no, truth social. I didn't think so. Um, I've always, I've always said that the one thing that I can relate to on a personal level with Donald Trump, like the only thing, is that we both have an unhealthy attachment to Twitter. I think it's. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, All right. Thanks, okay, Pedro. Uh, and I see Daniel's back. That's, well, I'm going to give him a chance to respond just because his name was brought up. So, Daniel, you're, you're back up. Hey. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think everything you said is fine. Okay. Uh, no, I just, I just wanted to say the reason you might be perceived as uh, tacitly supporting Russia is that it seems like the majority of your analysis goes in one way. goes one way in, in what respect yeah it's just like it just like you know somehow well, the, 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 well here's but here here's the here's the basic starting point of my analysis right i'm an american yeah. i have covered u.s foreign policy since i've been a journalist and even before i was a journalist it was a main interest of mine um, the U.S. has undertaken a massive, sprawling military intervention of sorts in a very uh, perilous uh, theater. 
Um, yeah. And so uh, given that Ukraine is now essentially being singularly propped up as both a state and as a military force by the United States on a number of different levels, um, that is the same, that is the thing that I am most interested in covering. And so, you know, if my coverage of that or my observations or, you know, analysis of that, therefore seems to some to align with a particular side, then so be it. I mean, that's the side that I've always been interested in, in analyzing, um, you know, just as I would uh, U.S. intervention in Iraq or, U- or uh, Libya or Syria or Yemen or any place else, um, you know, so, uh, yeah. It, it doesn't matter. It's still so a U.S. military not. intervention. It's still a U.S. military intervention. So it doesn't matter? Like there has well, to be I mean, the, the, I mean, differences the, in degree or kind? Well, I mean, that was, that was the basis for U.S. military intervention in Vietnam pretty much. That, you know, South Vietnam had a right to defend itself from attack. So, I mean, yeah. that's, that, that, that's, commonly, that's commonly a justification set forward for U.S. military intervention doesn't change that it's U.S. military intervention, and therefore it warrants my scrutiny from from that starting point. Yeah, I mean, but you're saying like now they're propping Ukraine up as a state. Like, are you? They are calling in, calling their sovereignty into question, just like Putin happened to do yesterday. Well, I don't know what Putin said or about or not about Ukraine's sovereignty. What I do know, and again, I don't need anything. I don't need to consult any of Putin's words to know this. I can look at you know what the State Department says or what USAID says or what's in the legislation the Congress has passed and so forth. I, I know that you know since as of um, February uh, between February and October of this year, the U.S. has already allocated. and pensions, um, and clearly, in terms of this, quote, sovereignty in the arrangement, given that the U.S. is the prime mover in terms of provisioning military support to Ukraine, the ultimate sovereignty over the, na- the trajectory of the war does not re- reside in Ukraine. It resides in the U.S. Um, that doesn't mean I'm, like, doubting the, the agency of Ukrainian actors. I'm just saying that, you know, ba- based on, like, a just neutral description of, like, the actual power dynamic that's operative here between the U.S. and Ukraine, it's not the, I mean, Ukraine is not the one calling the shots, right? It's the U.S. When the U.S. says, oh, nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine, we're deferring to Ukraine on strategic decisions, they're only in a position to make that policy statement because the U.S. is exercising its own sovereign authority to, you know, at least ostensibly delegate out to Ukraine those decisions. Um, so, like, I mean, you're, you wouldn't suggest that, like, you, Ukraine has power over this situation that's like not tethered to the US, right? Yeah, no. Like if, like, they like, like if, if, would if not they, have gotten this far without support from NATO. Well, I mean the and the US and the US specifically, I mean NATO is sort of diffuses diffuses the role of the US in being like basically the single-handed supporter of this. I mean even when NATO when like Armaments from other countries get 
provision to Ukraine, it's all a function. And even John Kirby, the White House spokesperson, he just reiterated this a couple of days ago. It, it's, it's all a function of the U.S. organizing the entire effort. I mean, I was actually in Poland at Yeshev at this new military installation right after the war started. And I saw with my own eyes, you know, how the U.S. is orchestrating the war effort. So, I mean, when you say that it's a, the whole sovereignty thing, I mean, whatever Putin says or doesn't say is irrelevant to my just basic factual analysis of the nature of the power dynamic in this arrangement. But, like, that takes I mean, a logical conclusion is, you know, 95% of the countries in the world don't have any real sovereignty because they're just basically... Not really. Uh, I mean, the great powers world. No, there, I mean, there's only one country in the world right now that's being single-handedly subsidized by the U.S. and whose military offensive is being operationally coordinated that's by the U.S. True. That's Ukraine. You know what that's other countries? True. What other countries? Oh, I don't know. Syria with Russia. Well, I'm saying the U. Hold on, the U.S. But, 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 I'm talking about the United States. Which <laughs> other countries in the world are being? Uh, Near single-handedly well, subsidized and having their military so operations. Not everything is about America for me. I'm talking about the United States. It's so America-centric. It's weird. Like, how is it t- talking I don't about you? Talking so talking about U.S. foreign policy. Yeah, it's inherently, I guess, America-centric. But that's what I'm talking about. Give me an example other than Ukraine of a country with this sort of arrangement right now with the United States. It's about. Russia you can't. Has the right you to can't. Invade you Ukraine. can't because the only even even throughout history, the only country that even uh, comes close to this sort of arrangement has been South Vietnam, and that was in the '60s, if you recall. So yeah, there are some unique properties to this current arrangement that are worth scrutinizing. And if you want to call me America centric because I'm focusing on American foreign policy, then I guess go ahead. That seems a bit bizarre. Okay. Well, j- again. I would just encourage you to, uh, I don't know, turn a critical eye towards Russia as well. And, uh, I have. I'm happy to. Like, if you're not familiar with Pavel Gubarev, I'd highly encourage you to uh, okay. learn more about him. Well, if he's, he receiving, said two weeks if he's ago receiving weapons from that, the United States, let me know. That the separatists, that the separatists, you know, if they have to kill one million or five million Ukrainians, then so be it. Uh, because they no, just I mean, I'm aware. I'm aware. I mean, one thing I have covered in terms of Russia's, you know, Russian fact act, actors uh, rhetoric is that it's clearly gotten more and more extreme as the war has gone on, which is kind of an expected byproduct of a war being protracted. And unfortunately, it's not being unfortunately, unfortunately, the, only, the, the U.S. The only has sought protracting the, the U.S. Has, is Russia. Well, no, I mean, I, I mean, no, that is true. Cause <laughs> the U S is protract, the U S is protracting it. I mean, the U S is just explicitly no, protracting that's not it. True. Well, I mean, then I'm going to, I'm going to tell that the, uh, the source that contacted me within the European command of the U S military last spring, who told me, who confirmed, you know, the beginnings of public reports that the U S strategy was to quote, bleed Russia dry and essentially protract the war to continue it to prolong the war, I, I guess I'll have to tell him that you somehow For know that purpose? that wasn't... Uh, Just to bleed Russia dry? To eventually, to bleed, to weaken Russia, that's what Lloyd Austin, the defense secretary, specifically said when he went to Ukraine in April, the purpose was to weaken Russia. And yeah, Biden that's himself not- said, Biden himself said that the idea, that Putin must go. So the idea ultimately is to effectuate like regime such change. such an essentialist view of what's being said. Like, obviously, that is something that's said but it's not that it's then the primary purpose. It's something that is happening as a result of this. Uh, right. 
the U.S. Like, is protracting the it, war. It could also be that they want to support Ukraine in their defense of their land and their people. And in so, I mean, let's say that, okay, let's grant that. In so doing, they're protra- yes. protracting the war, right? No, they're not because they're defending themselves. Okay, so why, the only, why, the why is it that, why is protracting it, the war? As, why, is it that, why is it that every step, why? India, you know, when they call for diplomacy, the U.S. 